Generation Red Pill. The only podcast hosted by Truthfully Armed, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories to the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host Christopher Dean. Yeah, baby. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. The New World Order Part 1, The Golden Age of Sin. Are the current nation states the result of centuries of geopolitical maneuvering, or are they the fragmented remains of an ancient judgment imposed by God on an antediluvian super kingdom destined to return? We're going to talk about this and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. To another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories to the heart of the conspiracy itself. Christopher Dean. How you doing, man? Ah, not bad, baby. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. How was your week? It was good. I, I came across some some almost disturbing information. What do you mean? So I really like Mike Winger as a, a Bible expositor, if you will. Okay. Uh, he has the Bible Thinker website. And uh, he said, I think he just had a Facebook post, but he said that he likes to listen to podcasts at double time, either 1.5 or, or 2x speed. You mean like changing the, the way that they sound? We, I mean, so I that think, it goes faster? Yeah, it goes faster, but I think technology is advanced that it doesn't like raise your voice really high. You don't sound like chipmunks anymore, like if you okay. speed up a record, but it just cuts through the information a lot faster. And, uh, I wasn't sure how to feel about it. Like on one hand, it's a good idea, especially with the amount of content that you and I go through. Right. Um, to be able to go through twice as much content in the same amount of time sounds really appealing. Uh, I'm worried about me sounding like a chipmunk, but thankfully you said <laughs> technology has gotten to the point. I ain't got to worry about that. Right. Okay. The thing that bothers me though, now as, as um, content producers or whatever the official term is, I don't know. We're still new. Content creators. Creators. Thank you. Yeah where so much time and effort goes into to crafting a message. And uh, my mentor is always getting on me about timing and tone and all of that. <laughs> and, the, and then you have great people like Mike Winger just going, eh, none of that matters. Let's just listen to it at double speed. I don't really care about all that stuff. Yeah. I'm, just gonna, I'm like, ah, I don't. I think we gonna have to call Mr. Winger up and be like, listen, man. <laughs> it's like you, 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 we giving you the director's cut. Right. And I don't want you making no adjustments <laughs> or changes to this. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. But I mean, good for him for listening to content. I just didn't know how to feel about it. How was your week, Jason? Uh, you know what, man? I, I got something that's been itching at me again, bro. All right. Again? Yeah. Dude, I've been, I've been hearing this term on the wire more and more. You know, it used to be I'd, I'd hear it in these little hushed conversations, you know what I mean? Whispered rhetoric around certain campfires that I found myself frequenting from time to time. But now it's becoming a little more mainstream. You know, I'm hearing movies and shows talking about this. I'm hearing podcasts starting to get into it. And you know, I'm, the fact, dude, the other day, I even heard a congressman say this. Really? You know, I, we got senators, uh, presidents, presidents, bro. Presidents are starting to use this term. It's wigging me out. Well, what's the term? It's called NWO. Okay. I don't know if you ever heard of this, man. Me being loosely familiar with some of the listening habits of the 80s and 90s young urban youth, I hear NWO sparks a little natural recall to NWA, which everybody knows means niggas with attitude. 
All so right. naturally, I was very concerned to find out what NWO meant, right? Okay. Especially with politicians using the term with all the handouts being given out recently. The NWO mean Negroes with options. <laughs> I'm saying if it did, I need to find out what options I, I qualify for. <laughs> right, right. No doubt. So that's not what it meant. Okay. What does it mean then? Bro, it means new world order. Okay. Now, my first thoughts naturally were new. What the hell was wrong with the old order? <laughs> At least I knew where we, we fell. I was concerned about me and my people. I know, right? But now that that's on the table, what is the new world order? And what, how would you define it? Well, dude, that's a great question. And uh, to keep it concise right now, I would say that the new world order is the, the culmination of everything we've been talking about for the last four weeks. You know, it's the final sector of control. This is absolute global control. Okay, I get that. I don't, I'm following you. I really am. But for the person that's just joining us, they haven't been along on this journey, mm-hmm. uh, and they're not familiar with the idea of these control sectors that you're talking about, uh, can we unfold that a little bit for them? All right. Uh, to do that, though, let's take a step back for a minute and remember that everyone on this planet is involved in what I would call really the most violent and longest-lasting war in history, Right. Okay. It, it's an interdimensional, multi-generational conflict that's seated in the metacosm, but it's beginning to spill over into our dimensional plane. Now, this war has got one basic ob- objective, and that is the complete overthrow of Yahweh's reign, resulting in the comprehensive takeover and control of every aspect of the created order, especially as it relates to the affairs of Earth and humanity in particular. Uh, this is being done using what you and I like to call uh, stop. And that stands for Satanic Takeover Protocol. Now, this protocol rests on a single but extremely effective tactic that we call the ICU strategy. And that's infiltrate, counterfeit, and usurp. This tactic, dude, is so deceptively simple. Infiltrate every aspect of God's creation. Counterfeit any processes, whether that be structures, institutions, systems, whatever. Any aspect of the created order that could be compromised, seize it. Get it. Take it, even if it be by force, deception, bribery, trickery, doesn't matter. For Satan, all is fair in hate and war, baby. So all of this is done in an effort to usurp God's right to rule and displace him as the rightful king of the universe. Now, here's the kicker. The ICU is part is actually put in place in order to implement the satanic control matrix. And that's really the big daddy scheme here. This is where control is implemented across the board on all levels. Leave no stone uncontrolled. I like that. That's the idea. If it has a, if it has life, it's got breath in it, control it. Well, let me clarify. I, I like the phrasing that you used. I don't like, oh, you don't the, like the concept. Right. Of everything <laughs> right. That control. Let me just put that out there. No, no, no. I'm with <laughs> you. I feel that. You know, and, and for us as human beings, this, this gets worked out across three interconnected zones or what we like to call here control sectors. That's where you got Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie. Uh, but to think of it a little differently, think of it as three distinct but still connected levels of control. Think of it as individual, social, and global. Does that make sense? Makes sense, yeah. So individual control is, is uh, sector alpha, and that's being implemented through a demonically influenced education system that forces behavioral and thought modifications that are inconsistent with biblical thinking, and they violate divine processes. Now, how do they do that? A person might ask, well, by destroying individuality, reducing cognitive intelligence, reengineering society, 
while at the same time initiating children into the occult. You've got grade schoolers being taught how to fight or how to find their spirit animal or learn how to invoke demonic help using uh, dream catcher rituals. You got students that are being familiarized with Gaia worship, which is like Mother Earth under the uh, pagan under pagan worship rituals um, that are used under the guise of environmentalism and multiculturalism. Or you have the sickening practice of teaching pre-adolescent pupils the perverse sexual education ideals that were derived from the, the, the pedophile-conducted research at Indiana University during the Kinsey sex studies. Yeah, and as a father, every time I hear about these, it just, it turns my stomach. It's absolutely disgusting. But I see what you mean on how it all produces uh, behavior and thought modifications that are completely inconsistent with a biblical standard. Right. And bro, dude, I'm not, I'm not a father yet. Yet. Yeah. At some point in the future, I plan on putting my, my hat in the ring, so to speak. <laughs> but dude, my stomach turns every time I hear that crap too. I mean, it's one of the most sickening things I've, I've learned during our, our research. Um, but then you've, you've got sector Bravo and that's where we have social controls that are being put into place using satanic mind control methods that are designed to turn people into mindless automatons that react to satanic conditioning. This is being introduced to the public through occult influence industries like news, entertainment, and big tech. So how are those uh, particular industries brainwashing the public? Brainwashing. I mean, a keen word choice there. I like that. Brainwashing is actually one aspect of mind control. There are others like hypnosis, predictive programming, cognitive conditioning, shock treatments, frontal cortex bypass. You even got emotional manipulation, just to name a few. But I don't want to say that that's just the tip of the iceberg. So let's just say that's the scratch on the hull of the Titanic. We ain't even cracked the ship open yet. <laughs> all right. We got all sorts of spellbinding happening here. Uh, really, uh, spellbinding is an occult term for mind control. You've got seducing spirits that are being paraded around by actors that have conjured them up in order to produce noteworthy performances. We got pagan ritualistic ceremonies being enacted during live musical performances like on the Grammys or on Super Bowl halftime show. Then we got superstar athletes that admit to either being involved with or aided by the occult in order to produce some of their record-breaking achievements and mind-blowing seasons. We've even got hyperactive video games that are incredibly addictive, which produce addiction levels that are equivalent of heroin and other addictive substances. But then to top all of that off, as if that wasn't enough, we have technological, quote-unquote, advancements designed to assist humanity in its significant evolutionary step moving forward with the emergence of transhumanism. We've got true augmented reality that relies on the meshing of man and machine to the point that it's hard to tell where one stops and the other starts. We got microchips that provide brain-computer interfacing, nanotech that can join you at a cellular level. We got chimera DNA being introduced into the, the human genotype. Oh, 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 let's not forget cognitive conditioning to be comfortable with and ultimately accept artificial intelligence. While we quietly produce quantum pace artificial intelligence, which is so vastly superior to human intelligence that it makes Skynet look like a fairy tale. That, my friend, is satanic mind control. That's a lot. Right. Then you move on to Sector Charlie. <laughs> now, this is where we start talking about global control. And that's Satan's endgame. This is where he's forcing unquestioned, absolute submission to his regime, which is what we're going to talk about during these, these uh, final two episodes, which will mark the conclusion, consequently, of our six-part miniseries. <laughs> 
miniseries, he yeah. says. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Yeah, right. This is more like an ultra series, and I <laughs> love it. Literally, the last four weeks have been leading up to this, and I can't wait to get into it. But having said all that, let's circle back to, um, to your equ- original question uh, that's on the table. How would you define the new world, new world order? <laughs> yeah, well, now that we've put that conceptual framework into place for the listener, I, I, I think it's safe now to go ahead and define the new world order as this. Let's define it as an attempt to reestablish Satan's antediluvian, which means pre-flood order, by reconstructing a satanic confederacy using the deep state, the deep church, and the deep occult in order to liberate creation from the oppressive hand of the creator by subjugating humanity, overthrowing the divine council, and enthroning the Antichrist as the Messiah, all while following that most ancient of Luciferian passions, right? The desire not to do the Father's will, but to do as thou wilt. Right. I like that. And I get that uh, using what we do here, it's important to have the expansive, robust definitions. Right. But for the person just ripping and running out there, uh, it might be a lot to digest. I get so, that. So if if you could come up with a, a more compact working definition, uh, what what would that sound like maybe? Uh, let's see if we can shorten that. Let's try this. An attempt to reconstitute the renegade satanic confederacy of the pre-flood world in an effort to overthrow Yahweh's created order and install a new cosmic religion that worships Satan as king and his antichrist as the new messiah. Now, if you want an even shorter version than that, you can define as this, an attempt to reconstitute the renegade satanic confederacy of the pre-flood world. But I tend to stay away from that short of a definition because it obscures the fact that, from what I can tell, the New World Order has two main aspects to it, a secular governmental aspect and a secular religious aspect, and both are equally important for understanding the overall goal of the New World Order. No, that, that's a good point. And it is important to realize both the political and religious aspects of the NWO. But I got to say, we're about to switch gears here and really get into the thick of it. Or as our good friend TJ likes to say, we're about to start playing survival, the real game. Right. So because I think because of that, I think it might be good to remind our listeners of something. All right. What you thinking, bro? Well, so far, we've pushed the envelope a bit and dealt with things <clears throat> Uh, like we just talked about a few moments ago, uh, like the occult influence in education at the Kinsey sex studies. Uh, we've broached the idea of occult-based mind control kickstarted by illegal, illegally importing um, Nazi occult scientists into the bowels of American scientific establishment under Operation Paperclip, which, by the way, should cause the thinking believer to pause and consider that fact. Absolutely, because it should cause us to question why mainstream media and you know, society at large places such a strong emphasis on quote unquote science as though it's a pure discipline and is like this, uh, you know, universal arbiter of truth, blind to bias, corruption, or even a spiritual agenda. The fact is it's not, you know, science is practiced by scientists. Scientists are human beings and human beings are susceptible to bias, to corruption and spiritual agendas. Even without any shred of corruption, there's necessary philosophical presuppositional underpinnings that are required to even begin a scientific pursuit. You know, if you're required to have knowledge before science can be practiced, science itself can't be used as the exclusive voice of truth. Right on point, bro. And, and really, that thought's going to 
that thought is going to fester. <laughs> but like I was saying, we talked about the occult influence, the net industries, and what they're doing to condition the social media, the social mind, geez, the social mind to accept Luciferian programming. But all of this is it's kind of the conservative side of where we're about to go during these next two episodes. What do you mean? Well, we're about to move from dealing with the provocative to dealing with the fringe. Mm -hmm. And fringe shouldn't be confused with conspiratorial things per se or, right. or fake news. Right, right. But fringe in the sense that um, it's less talked about and more importantly, it's less thought about or deeply considered. I like that, man. And like you said, well, you know, we're often talking about these types of things. And with an audience of size, we already know that there's going to be people that are naturally uncomfortable with some of the things that we're about to get into. And that's completely understandable. We get it. But we got to ask that people who are listening to this simply do this. Please reserve judgment. Yeah. You know, hear us out and then go do your own homework and decide from there. Uh, you know, really the stuff we're about to get into, in my opinion, is a really fascinating study that's worth the time. It's worth the time to go search it out. Uh, but if you shut down and a person decides, you know, I ain't really feeling this, you know, undoubtedly they're going to do themselves a disservice. Right. Because right. this is really critical information to get the mind wrapped around. It is, for sure. I think it was Plato that said um, it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it. That's crazy, man. I remember the first time you told me that <laughs> out there at, uh, at Vicky's. Yeah. I thought that was a great, a great quote. It's something I never heard before. Yeah, I love it. Because it, it holds the sentiment that an idea really needs to be entertained before it can be thoughtfully accepted or rejected. And it's true. It does. And most people tend to just respond out of emotional bias. Right. Before they've actually just considered the merits of an idea. I'm all for somebody saying, okay, this doesn't seem to make sense. Explain it a little more. If you do, I, I can't buy into it based on the argument you gave me. You know, I, I'm just not really, I can't advocate for that. Right. I get that. But when people start at the very beginning of listening to you and already have the door closed, that's frustrating. Right. It's like rejecting a book just because of its title. Right. Um, and what is it that uh, that saying from Missler that you like? The easiest way to stop yourself from getting to the truth is condemnation before investigation. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That, well, <sighs> with that being said, uh, let's get into it. A few moments ago, I heard you use the word reconstitute. Mm -hmm. Now, when defining the new world order, does that mean that there was an old world order or an original order? That's a great question. Because if you're a well-adjusted Christian, then when you hear the term new world order, you wouldn't think very much of it. True. But if you're a person that's anything like, you know, you and me, or even one of our listeners, especially one of the listeners that's been with us since day one, unfortunately, they are no longer well-adjusted Christians, right? <laughs> Right. Instead, they are rather unadjusted, but serious thinking believers, hopefully. And when they hear a term like new world order, they should immediately think, well, if it says new, it must immediately imply, logically speaking, that there must be an old order. Right. But then here's the question. If there is an old order, you know, an ancient system of global governance, then does the Bible really have anything to say about that? See, that's a good question, because when I go to my Bible and hit up the concordance, I can't find anything on world orders, whether old or new. Right, right. But 
it's in there, believe it or not. You know, it's actually across Genesis, Daniel, and Revelation. But here's the thing. God is actually so dope in his foresight and how he decided to go about writing the scriptures. Scripture is written in such a way that it anticipates what we would call hostile jamming. And that happens when an enemy interferes with or prevents the successful transmission of a message to its intended recipient. So when you're in the intelligence business and you want to get a message sent out without it being uh, intercepted, you spread it out across the available band left to avoid tampering or corrupting of the image. That way, if a piece goes missing, you don't lose the entire message. That's crazy because it reminds me, and I don't know if I should admit this, I don't know what the statute of limitations is for copying DVDs. I don't know, but for the sake of conversation, I'm interested. <laughs> admit away. Okay, so uh, my younger brother, Nathan, in a lot of ways, he's way smarter than I am. Okay. And it really irritates me. Like me he, too. He's given me information before that I'm like, that's dumb. And five years later, I was like, wow, he was he was onto something five years ago. Right. Uh, but we used to do, uh, we used to, when Netflix was just DVDs, if anyone remembers that, like you just subscribed and they sent you DVDs. Before they were streaming service? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Before a streaming service was even a thing. Uh, so what we did is we got a couple, you know, one, two terabyte hard drives. Well, actually, we had several eventually. Uh, and we just rent the, the DVDs from Netflix and then we'd, we'd copy them over to our hard drive. Okay. I think it's illegal, but we weren't selling them or anything like that. We just thought it was cool because uh, we were doing that. And then we got into it a little bit. And once we started adding these hard drives. He was like, well, we can, we can change how we're doing this if you want to. And I was like, okay. And him being the smarter of the brothers, he was like, well, we can put, you know, a hundred movies on this hard drive. And I don't remember the exact number, but we can put, you know, a hundred movies on this one, a hundred movies on that one and a hundred movies on the third one. Okay. And he's like, or there's actually a way that we can spread it across the whole thing. And I was like, well, why would you want to do that? And he's like, well, because if one of the hard drives crashes, then we still have all of the movies. Now, it reduces the quality a little bit because you lose some of the information. Mm -hmm. But because the movie is spread across different hard drives, you never actually are threatened with losing, you know, a hundred of the movies that you right. want. And that's crazy to think that that's how the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Because there's not one chapter on salvation and one on baptism and, and right, whatever. Right. So even if we lose a couple of books here and there, we still get the whole message. And it's crazy that God utilized that technology before humans even knew it existed. See, now, it's funny you said Netflix, and I'm not trying to one-up you. It's just you took my mind somewhere. Um, and speaking about putting information across an available bandwidth okay, and dealing with optical disc, uh -huh. um, the way CDs and DVDs work, there's a light source that's emitted on the bottom of the disc. And there are pits and grooves that are cut into the disc using the laser when it's first manufactured. Okay. When that light hits the pit or the groove, uh, or if it hits the, the, the groove and not the pit, because I'm using these two things as though they're different. They're actually the same thing. If the light hits the groove, it creates one value of reflection. If it hits the top and not in the groove, it creates a different value. So you get binary. Okay. You no know, zeros and ones, which is pretty much what digital information and digital audio is. Right. Then there's a optical receiver, which takes the light that's reflected back, uh -huh. reads it, and then changes it into audio. If you have a scratch that goes on the disc, uh -huh. it messes up the laser's ability to send light across those grooves. Okay. So you get an error. If the laser goes across the entire plane that's being read, 
the disc doesn't the the CD player or the DVD player doesn't know what to do and it like skips. Okay. So to get anti-skip protection, uh-huh, what it would do is look at both sides of that groove and it would get information from before and information after and put it together. And to account for the missing piece of information. Okay. And this is where, like, you remember some of those portable CD players you put in your pocket? Yep. Remember when they first came out, they skip all the time? <laughs> uh-huh. When they came up with these algorithms to do anti-skip to account for variations in the reflected light, uh-huh. you got anti-skip technology. That's crazy. I didn't. I never knew how that worked. I thought it was really, I thought it was like a hardware thing. Really? They just added a spring. <laughs> so, and it kept it from, like, moving around? Yeah. No, it's really a, a pretty unique algorithm deal. Huh. To look at the reflected light. It's also why they tell you if you're going to clean a disc, uh-huh. never clean it in a circle. Always, Always clean away out. from. So if you scratch it inadvertently, that scratch doesn't go along the whole circle, which if the lens was trying to read that circle, you'd have complete missing information. Whereas if you're going from the center out to the edge, as far as the laser reading, if you inadvertently scratched it, you just have a blip. Interesting. That's crazy. Science to all this stuff, right? Right. That's great. I feel like I need the reading rainbow the more you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. But listen, dude, to uh, <laughs> to answer your question more directly, yes, there, there was an original order, uh, a world order, and the Bible does actually have quite a bit to say about it, with the bulk of that information being spread across uh, early part of Genesis, you know, talking between chapters 3 and 10, to be a little more exact. Okay. Well, the next obvious question then is how did things get so messed up? Because anyone that looks around in the world today recognizes that things aren't the way that they should be. There, there should be improvements or, or however, there, there's an issue at hand. And what we have today seems to be such a far cry away from what we see in Genesis. Oh, you're right, dude. It's definitely a far cry from how things were set up in Genesis. And yes, you're also right. We're even a further cry away from how things were originally set up. So yes, on both accounts, how things were under a, a renegade regime and how things were originally under God's command. In fact, it seems like the, the new world order promises so much and yet delivers so little. It seems like uh, the promise is always some version of, to quote the great philosopher, Lord Ultron, to have peace in our time. <laughs> but that never happens. And things just seem to always go from bad to worse. Or right. or at least it's a cycle of reset and degradation. Now, you're spot on, man, which is why I find the point that Mike Heiser makes in his book, Reversing Herman, so interesting. Yeah, Heiser says, if you ask a modern Christian why the world is the way it is and all humanity is so thoroughly wicked, the chances are very high that an answer of the fall would be what you would hear. Okay. Heiser goes on to say, we've been conditioned by church history and both ancient and modern history to look only to Genesis 3. But if you asked a Jewish person living in the Second Temple era the same question, the answer would actually be dramatically different. And, and that would make sense because even looking at Genesis 3, like it— it doesn't seem to be the end all be all. Right. You know, there's the uh, the first prophecy of Jesus is it is in there. Yeah, they call that the uh, proto evangelum. Okay. Yeah. Nice. That's good yeah. word usage. That's right. I've been holding <laughs> that one. But yeah, the, the the seed of the serpent would be at enmity with the seed of the woman. Um, that implies like f- further issues. Like it's not just a, a one and done type of thing. 
And um, I think it was L.A. Marzulli wrote a book called The Cosmic Chess Match. And he points out that every time God makes a step or reveals a step that he's going to take to redeem humanity, then the enemy comes in and counters it. So God coming in and um, uh, judging, quote, the fall <coughs> is one step, but then we still have this point counterpoint or this chess match that continues on after that mm -hmm. to, to bring us to a place that we are today. So with, with all of that in view, um, what would the, the second temple Jew or how would the second temple Jew answer that question? Do you think? Well, according to Heiser, second temple Jews recognized a, a broader reason for the depravity of the world that contemporary Christianity is willing to recognize. And it extended beyond just the moral depravity of man and included actually the illegal insertion of fallen angels into our dimensional plane of existence and the monstrous fallout that resulted from that incursion. Okay. You know, they recognized the reality of the divine council and the fact that divine beings not only influence, but in some cases they even interfere in the affairs of man, both legally and illegally, which produced a very specific and unique worldview that we'll talk about later. Additionally, this seemed to recognize the, the divine struggle for and over power. Okay, wait, wait, wait. The divine struggle for and over power? Yeah. What in the world is that? What's this idea that you could struggle, quote, you know, for power when there's a, a finite amount of it, kind of like what happens in Washington, D.C.? Uh, but you could also struggle over power, and that's where one side is trying to limit or take away the power of the other, which also happens. In DC. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. So, but to, to put it in context, context, you're saying that God and Satan are in this power struggle? They are, but you can't think of it in, in traditional terms. All right. Uh, in a certain sense, yeah, God's not struggling for power since he has an infinite supply of it, right? Okay. But rather, he's in a, a fight over power in the sense that he's constantly limiting or taking away the finite amount of power that Satan has. Okay. Now, Satan, on the other hand, is in a fight for power, which is trying to gain as much as he can. And he's in a fight over power because he's trying to limit how much power God has in the world, which is a very sad predicament. But such is the fight of the spiritually insane. <laughs> well, this has got to be right up your alley because you're a power guy. You love power. And not to make you sound like a despot. <laughs> That's funny. That's exactly what you make me sound like. Uh, but you know, dude, you, you and I have talked a lot, uh, about this before. I am equally fascinated and terrified by power. Okay. Uh, you know, what it can do when it's under control fascinates me. What it's capable of doing when it's unleashed terrifies me. And I, I find this terrifying fascination, if you will, you know, split across <laughs> a few areas. It makes me think what the Bible says uh, about the tongue, that there's power of life and death can be found in the tongue. Yeah. <laughs> but few people actually handle their tongue uh, with the care that they should, a deadly weapon. You know, it's interesting you say that because I remember the first time I actually got to shoot a firearm. Okay. Uh, it freaked me out. Really? The sheer power, there we go again, <laughs> uh, of this device and the concussive force when you discharge around. Okay. If you've never been around a firearm before uh -huh. and you're standing in close proximity to other people with firearms and everybody shoots at the same time on a range and you feel pressure waves uh -huh. and you're like, whoa, <laughs> you know, you're, you're not expecting that. And you feel that concussive force hit you. 
and you feel the recoil from your own your own gun as it goes through you know your forearm and your shoulder or what have you it really struck me how much power is contained in these devices and how much destruction they can cause especially if they are not utilized properly inadvertent destruction you know right. somebody that's just minding their own business can you know can get hit yeah or <laughs> i can attest to this personally not that i was shot at a firing range uh, but one of my first times with a firearm was uh, with my father. We had 22 rifles, which mm -hmm. don't kick very much at all. And then we go right from that to a 12-gauge shotgun. Oh, that's got a lot of kick. Well, my dad, in his infinite wisdom, he goes, it has a lot of kick, but don't worry about holding it against your shoulder. I'll do that. He's like, I'll hold it tight against your shoulder. All you need to worry about is aiming and pulling the trigger. This sounds like it's going to be fun. It was horrible so i i i aim down range right Th uh -huh. think i got it pull the trigger and this thing comes back bam smashes into my shoulder i got tears running down my face i was like i thought you said you were gonna hold it he's like oh yeah i forgot <laughs> i was like how do you forget to do that see now if you'd been smart you'd have been like just look right here at the front end of this and just tell me when you see a flash so it's funny that, that your first time with the firearm gives you some respect to power and mine just gives me trust issues. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. Well, one of my takeaways from dealing with the firearm was you got to be careful how you use this thing. Right. You know, holstering it, unholstering it. Not to barrel sweep. Don't be stupid with sweep. it. Right. Don't try to be super like John Wick. I have an unfortunate confession to make. Okay. <laughs> so... They say almost every accident that happens with firearms is a person not adhering to the rules related to firearms. Right. And I was like, no, that can't be. I'm here to attest it is true. <laughs> okay, what happened? All right, so back in, I, I want to say a prior life. <laughs> All right, I am, uh, I'm, I'm an armed guard, I'm an armed courier. All right. Worked for a, a, uh, a cash company. And so trying to familiarize myself with some of the techniques and firearm retrieval and firearm, you know, pulling it out of your holster and all of that type of stuff. And one of the things with the particular uh, gun that I carried, I think at the time was a Glock 23, but okay. the mechanisms within the Glock because of the internal safety structure that it has, uh -huh. there's like a, an intermediary wall that you can feel the trigger come up against. Okay. Which like it deactivates the first safety. Or uh, I think it deactivates the second safety because the first safety is actually embedded in the trigger itself. Okay. So you have to squeeze the trigger a little bit, which disengages the first safety. Pull it back some, which disengages the second safety. And then you have to continue on to actually dis discharge the weapon. Okay. I was trying to get good enough to where I could deactivate safeties one and two without going to the third one. Okay. Because, you know, under, under pressure in my job, when I have time... Right. To do you gotta all have this. that muscle memory. So yeah, you got to have it down pat. And I've seen this in movies enough that I know this is what you got to do. I've seen it in movies enough. I love that. These are my training videos. <laughs> so I'm at home one day. Nobody's around. I'm practicing these drills. Ah, okay. Got it. Good. Put it back in my holster. Pull it out. Ah, yeah, baby. You're dangerous. Put it back in. I was like, let me get a third one. Got to do it a third time. I lost hearing in my right ear. I wasn't sure why. <laughs> It was preceded by this weird flash thing. And I didn't know what happened. I don't understand why my right ear is not functioning the way my left ear was. And so I looked down. And there's a smoking hole 
in the floor, my parents' house, and wow. it is less than a centimeter away from my foot. Jeez. So is it your first, what is it, desk pop or office pop? Whatever. Yeah. Accidental discharge. That's what they call it. And so <clears throat> the, the, the round goes through the floor. Okay. Was anybody else the basement. home? No. Goes into the basement. And so I'm like, my old crap brain is kicked on. <laughs> and while I'm trying to account for all of the consequences, I'm also trying to figure out what just happened. And so I can see the hall. I was like, well, let me go get the evidence. Okay. So we open up the, the door to the basement. I go <laughs> flick on the light. And the light doesn't work. And my first thought is, oh, crap, I shot the light. Right. I don't even know where the light lives, but apparently <laughs> I shot it. Like, the light's dead. Do I have to report that? So I run downstairs, and I'm like, oh, what happened? I look up, and I can see the hole. And when I see embedded in the wood, this groove. And right across the groove is this wire. And no. it's in the path. And this wire is sheared open. And the round had gone through the floor, along the back of the stairs, <laughs> had hit the wire, cut it open, like, like shorted it out, uh-huh. and continued on. So my mathematical brain kicked in, and I start following the angle trajectory. I said, if it came in here and goes there, maybe it should be, uh-oh, in the middle, right in the middle of concrete floor is a round. <laughs> Mushroomed open. Yeah. So let me pick this up. I go and I pick it up. Let me put the evidence away. <laughs> They'll never know. Never know. I had to figure out what to do with this light. <laughs> so I pray. I'm like, God, I don't know what to do about the light. Right. I walk upstairs. I hit the switch because it was no longer shorted out. It works. Okay. So I'm like, great. Light, the light's good. Nobody knows. Cool. My mother comes home. Doesn't say anything. She's great. Okay. I'm like, this is awesome. I don't have to say anything. <laughs> I don't have to tell no one. This is, this is amazing. Right. Later that night, my mom's like doing the dishes. She's got all her stuff done. Puts the dishes up. Gets her mop out. Mopping the floor. And uh, goes around the whole kitchen. Dish very, very thorough. Uh-huh. She does her stuff. And, uh. Ends up kind of like trying to scrape and get this, uh, whatever it is, this mark out of the floor. And she's scraping over it, and it won't come up. Oh, and she's like, man. what in the world is this? Because she's putting like some real serious elbow grease into it. Right, right. Bends over, looks. It's a daggone hole. <laughs> hey, Jason, come here for a minute. <laughs> it's amazing how quick. Your thought processing language skills go offline. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I go downstairs. You, you know something about this new architectural modification <laughs> in the floor of our wonderful residence? <laughs> what person? I mean, no say. No, 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 no I'm, speaker. Not, I'm not even speaking English at this point. I got perfect Spanish diction. I mean, no say, senorita. I don't know. <laughs> So I have to tell her everything that happened. All right. Classic black mother. Are you okay? Wow, I think I've escaped this. Yes, mother. English came back online. My safety (laughs) went away. I was like, oh, I'm safe. I'm good to go. I could be honest. Yes, mom. I am good. She goes, all right. Are you hungry? No, no, I'm good. We already ate. You tired? I mean, no, I'm feeling pretty good. Are you crazy? I don't think so. Well, then you have no excuse for this hole that you just put in our house. I was like, oh, there it is. Now she's losing it. 
Oh, that's great. She literally had a natural conniption. I had never seen one of these before. <laughs> the thing that made it worse is she was like, tell your father. Ooh. I was like, no, I told you. You guys are one flesh. It shouldn't be like I told one. It's like telling the other. Do you know what it's like to sit down and tell your dad that you shot his house? No, I can't imagine that. The ironic thing is neither parent is most concerned about the safety of their child. Uh-huh. Apparently, I'm not limping, so I'm okay. Right. My dad was like, so so what you going to do? I, I, I go out here. I work hard. I deal with the man. I deal with the pressures of the world. You know, I'm a pastor. I got to deal with Satan and the demons that are out there. <laughs> and after dealing with all of these things, after slaving to put food on the table for you and your kind. So my kind? Yeah, your kind. <laughs> What you're telling me is that when I come home to a house that I have prayed earnestly and fasted for and beseeched the Lord for, and then I'm just hoping provide some measure of value and worth that I can even pass on to my children. As I see my property values rise, what you're telling me is you thought the best thing to do is to shoot those values in the floor. <laughs> that, that's what you're going to do with your time, huh? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't quite bring myself. I didn't have the heart to explain how this, this tragedy had befell me. You were just trying to better yourself. That's what I was trying to do. Right. But I failed <laughs> completely to use any modicum of wisdom in how I handled this dangerous weapon. Here's the takeaway from this incredibly non-hilarious story. Okay. The tongue is more dangerous than a firearm. And words travel faster and go further than bullets do. Interesting. And they cause an immense amount of damage and pain and suffering, especially when discharged or handled carelessly. There's almost always someone who pays a price for misspoken words. So what was interesting to me is that we tend to train people to be more careful with a gun than we do with speech. Yeah, that's sad. Right. So that's why I went down this hole. This whole valley just sparked memory. <laughs> the thing that I took away from it, like I was, part of me wanted to go into this diatribe on, you know, in agreement with the power of words and all that. But I just can't help but think, because so many adults, like you, you watch an action movie and people are like shooting the cables or, you know, shooting lights out or whatever. And the bullets can't do that. Or like, you know, shooting the handcuffs. Right, right. You shot a power cable in your house. I was like, so this stuff does work. <laughs> this, this whole important lesson you're trying to tell. That's and I'm all like, that you I wonder how that. many wires I could shoot out. Yeah. Yeah. There's something <laughs> special about you. Anyway, that's funny. <laughs> outside of firearms. Uh, what are some other areas of power? Pairs of power that I find interesting. Yeah. That you find interesting, you know, bro, for me, it's typically broken across, uh, four areas. Uh, It's natural power, technological power, political power, and spiritual power. Okay. Those are four good categories. Talk to me about natural power. I feel like I'm getting interviewed, man. (laughs) Well, for me growing up, man, there were two uh, disciplines of study that absolutely fascinated me. And I went through that age old uh, fight between what I want to do when I grow up. Uh-huh. And I had, I drove my mother crazy because every week I wanted to be something else. Right, right. Uh, but one of the things that stuck with me as I got older was actually meteorology. I found very, very fascinating. Okay. And uh, volcanology. Is that like the history of uh, the alien race from Star Trek? 
The Vulcans? Yeah. No, it's not the study of Spock, but I guess that's a good guess. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was a Vulcan. <laughs> but no, Vulcanology is the study of volcanoes. Okay. Um, and uh, I remember I watched this movie, and I want to say it was like middle school. It's called uh, Basic with John Travolta and Samuel Jackson. Uh-huh. And there's a scene where they are, uh, I guess Samuel Jackson is is uh, a CO, commanding officer, uh-huh. and he's training these Green Berets, and they're out in like this, looks like a thunderstorm in the plot. It's like a level one hurricane. Okay. I never took that small but important detail away. <laughs> so I see these real tough guys out in the rain, and Samuel Jackson makes a statement, you think we're going to stop fighting because a few raindrops are falling? We don't pause war for just rain. And I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense. I guess you wouldn't. Right, right. So all this talk about when it's raining, run inside. I shouldn't do that, especially if I'm a tough boy. Yeah. Yeah, stay outside. You got this. So I started staying outside when it rained. Okay. But it was kind of cool. I mean, I probably put my life in danger. <laughs> but you get to see some things that you don't see when you're inside. And one of the things that would fascinate me is you see how the trees start to turn up, the leaves start to get a little white. Uh-huh. You can tell when a storm's coming in, the atmosphere changes, the smells change. Yep. And you know, all right, rain's on the way. But then when it starts raining, if you look up in the sky, depending on the power of the thunderstorm, you can see the clouds moving. Uh-huh. Not just going over you, but sometimes internally moving. Right. And I was like, that's fascinating. Or you can see a multi-layered structure. And it started to just build this fascination with me with thunderstorms. Yeah, that's cool. We used to live, um, the house I grew up in, had several like cornfields across the street. Okay. Um, and it just happened to be positioned in where the, the weather typically came in. So I probably don't have quite the fascination that you do. Mm. Um, but it was a common thing that, you know, as the weather started to change, we would all go out on the front porch and watch the sky change and, you know, feel the, the temperature shift and all of that as these storms came in. It was, it was pretty sweet. Yeah. According to, uh, I looked up this, this fact, according to lifescience.com, a team of scientists actually measured a single thundercloud traveling at roughly 40 miles, 40 miles an hour okay. uh, at an altitude of seven miles, which is roughly about 36, 37,000 feet. All right. Right. It's about the same, the same distance or height down to the ocean floor, like where the Marianas Trench is. Okay. So it's a pretty considerable, considerable height uh, above sea level. This cloud had an estimated area of about 146 square miles. To put that into a, so a relative term for our listeners, that's an area of about six times the size of Manhattan. Jeez. It reached its maximum electrical potential just six minutes after appearing. Wow. Now, armed with this knowledge, the researchers were, were finally able to calculate that that thunderstorm carried about two gigawatts of power, making the single thundercloud more powerful than the most powerful nuclear reactor plants in the world. That's crazy. Right? That amount of energy stored uh, is enough to supply all the power needs of a city like New York City for uh-huh. 26 minutes. And more than that, that's more energy than it takes Doc Brown to travel through time. You are retarded. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, you, hurricanes, all that type of stuff fascinates me. You know, Cat 5 hurricane, maximum sustained speed, at least 156 miles per hour. But we don't even have that kind of relative framework to work in. What's it like to go that fast? Right. Let alone be hit by wind that's moving at least that fast. That's nuts. That's not the maximum capacity of a Category 5. That's just the minimum threshold to be qualified as a Cat 5. Okay. You know, 
all of that, these storms run off of massive heat stores that are contained in the ocean water. Now, ocean water currents are another form of energy that freaks me out because energy and nutrients are preserved via multiple currents that, that combine to form, uh, I think it's called the circumpolar current. Okay. But heat transferred to the earth that's stored in these currents comes from the sun. The sun is 93 million miles away. That's, that's a good distance. Like 93 million. That's one astronomical unit. It takes starlight or sunlight approximately eight minutes to leave the surface of the sun and travel at the speed the light travels to reach the earth, wow. covering 93 million miles. And all that energy mostly gets absorbed in the ocean water, which then plays into the atmospheric conditions that we experience. Okay. So are ocean water currents, are they, are they actually powerful? Like they are, I mean, you, because they, well here, let me, cause my, the, the understanding that I have, unfortunately is from movies. I criticized you from, from getting your information from movies and that's all I'm hitting this with. Right. But, um, finding Nemo in the East Australian current, it didn't Open seem, deep, <laughs> focus deep. right. It didn't seem too bad. It's just chilling out with turtles. <laughs> Yeah, that's like one of my favorite parts of it. I hate it, Funny Nemo, but that part with the currents <laughs> is actually one of my, my favorite parts. All right. But no, it's actually really fascinating. There are rivers uh, of fluid all over the planet. Okay. You have rivers of air, which we call jet streams. Right. You actually have rivers of water on land. Which are called rivers. Right. <laughs> I got you, one. You got you one. Did. That was a bit on the nose, but I like that. You didn't miss that. Then you have rivers in the ocean, which are called currents. Okay. And they move massive, massive amounts of water. Huh. They move a lot of water per second. And then if you have these, these points where, uh, geologically speaking, where the water is constrained, uh-huh. you move even more water through restricted points. Okay. So like around Antarctica, I think there's called the... Uh, the tip of South America squeezes the ocean, uh, the, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, in between the tip of, of South America and the Atlantic, not Atlantic, the uh, Antarctic continent. Okay. And so this little strait or whatever squeezes two oceans where they meet together. So there's a massive amount of water moving through there? There is. Okay. There's a massive amount of storms mm. that come through there, too. Like going around that little, that little uh, horn is one of the most dangerous parts of the ocean that a ship can go through. Interesting. Yeah, when you start thinking about power, dude, this is crazy. So if we're getting power from, from heat that's coming from the sun, and the sun is, what is it? It produces 100 million atomic bombs per second because it functions off of nuclear uh, fission. Okay, that's a lot. That per second. <laughs> A hundred million atomic bombs. And these are like Hiroshima uh, level bombs. Okay. You know, at its core, the sun is fusing approximately 620 million metric tons of hydrogen, which in turn makes about 616 million metric tons of helium every second. That's a lot. That's how it generates the heat. That's, that's almost more than you can wrap your mind around. No, it's not for me. It's not almost it's well beyond. (laughs) Okay. Well beyond you're doing this every second. Like, can you imagine how, how much sound that is, how noisy that's got to be. A hundred million nuclear explosions every second. 
That is astronomically crazy. Right. The sun is so big it could house over one million Earths in it. And yet, here's the crazy thing. The sun's considered a yellow dwarf. Okay. So you have other stars that are larger than the sun, like Eta Carinae. Eta Carinae is five million times larger than our sun. Then you have Betelgeuse. Now, Betelgeuse sits in the constellation Orion. Betelgeuse is so big, it's 300 times larger than Eta Carinae. It's so big that if you set Betelgeuse, which is like the red, uh, the red star in the constellation Orion that is 90 degrees from his belt, okay. when you look up, uh-huh. it's, it's small to us looking at it. This star is huge. If you set it in the middle of our solar, solar system, uh-huh. this, this star, its volume would go reach all the way out to the orbit of Jupiter. Wow. It is massive. But Betelgeuse is smaller than the largest star that we found up to date. Okay. That's VY Canis Majoris. It is one billion times bigger than our sun. Jeez. I, I can't wrap my mind around that. No, that there's no point of reference for that size. It's it's crazy, but you've got me interested now. What is it about technological power that gets you going? <laughs> Listen, man, most women probably won't get this. I suspect. Okay, maybe some will, depending on how they were raised. But most men will probably understand this instinctively. There is something so exhilarating about that raw, untamed roar of mechanical power. You know what I mean? Yeah. See, no, I get it. Listen, I don't care if we talk about a thousand horsepower of a V6 hybrid turbocharged engine of an F1 race car. Or if we talked about the 3,200 horsepower of a diesel electric locomotive engine, that raw, unadulterated power that comes from like two GE F110 turbofan engines strapped to the back of a Grumman F14 Tomcat to strapped to the deck of a U.S. Nimitz-class aircraft carrier waiting to be launched by a steam catapult that's able to generate 300,000 foot-pounds, which means it can take a plane weighing about 45,000 pounds and accelerated from zero to 165 miles an hour in just two seconds. That's power, baby. That's crazy. That little type power, <laughs> yeah, that get me going a little bit. Yeah, no doubt. I remember I was at an air show and we were sitting at the end of the runway and little old Spears boy, I pulled out my little meal for the day. Got All me right. a little ham sandwich, right? Right. Get ready to go to town on this ham sandwich. I go take a bite. I can't really bite down. The reason I can't bite down is my body paused and it paused because the air was getting sucked out of the region that I was in. I didn't know why the air was getting sucked out. Okay. Once I got older, I figured out what was going on. A few seconds later, this F-15 Strike Eagle comes roaring off the deck, goes past me. Its engines are so powerful. They're sucking in air and we were near the runway. Okay. So it's sucking in air from the vicinity. And that's what I felt leaving me. That's crazy. And this thing takes off. He floors it. He goes straight up. Reminds me of this uh, Blue Angel pilot. He said, uh, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, these pilots, they get me. They can be a little smug, right? Guy's sitting there in his chair, sconced in there, doing this, giving this interview. And he said, uh, you know, some people think that our job is a bit dangerous. It's not dangerous. It's just very unforgiving. You can't make mistakes. There's nothing better than sitting behind the, the, the controls of an F-18 Hornet. Getting it off the deck, getting the gear up, transitioning the flaps, taking it to about 300, 300 miles per hour, getting to the end of the runway, and standing it up on its tail like a bat out of hell. 
just be, and he gets this smirk, and I was like, I equally hate you and love you. At the same time, I <laughs> am confused. strange relationship. It's a very strange relationship. I want to experience this. Mechanical power is amazing to me. I mean, I, I heard a girl, a girl ask one time, why is it that guys constantly have to, like, hit their pedal and just rev their engine? I'm like, woman, you don't understand. This is how God has made us. Unfortunately, us men folk don't have a natural roar. We right. weren't given what lions are given, the gorillas <laughs> given. You know, even even crocodiles have this little bellow moan that sounds like a roar. Right, right. The best we can do is a V8. That's it. <laughs> it's the best we can afford. It was once you hear me roar. Yeah, no, that's crazy because there's a there's a saying uh, like motorcyclist. You know, let me play you the sound of my people. Right. And you just open it up. Well, you remember on my truck as soon as I got the exhaust done. Uh-huh. Best thing I ever did <laughs> was found as many tunnels as I could. Yep. And hit the gas floor in it and just listen. <laughs> but I got to tell you, for me, it helps me identify with God in a different way. Okay. Like, I think people, you know, in church, we talk about the still small voice of God. Mm -hmm. That was the secondary voice. Okay. If you're in scripture and you notice the first voice is when Moses is on Mount Sinai. Right. And Moses was like, people, it is your God. Heareth him speak. And the people heard, <laughs> I swear they were black. They, they heard thunder. <laughs> they heard lightnings. That is not lightning. Lightnings is more dangerous than lightning. Okay. And you can hear it apparently. Yeah. You can hear lightnings. <laughs> they heard lightnings, thunder, and all sorts of chaos. And they said, please, Moses, make it stop. You talk to God and tell us what he say. After that, God starts speaking in a still small voice, which yeah. lets me know God's voice is pretty powerful. And if you look at his fingerprint on the stuff he designs, those things are powerful too. Right. And I think as, as, as males, we embody the power of our creator. So there's something, uh, germane to trying to identify with that and its various aspects. No, I get that. But you did mention uh, political power. And mm -hmm. when I was young, politics really, really bored me. So, I mean, with everything going on the last several years, I find myself getting involved in it. But you, you mentioned it as like a, a point of power that intrigues you. So lay that out for me. Okay, really quick uh, for the sake of time. Two things really quick. Uh, I remember watching the film, uh, the TV show, The West Wing. Okay. And there's a, a scene where um, Josh Lyman, who's the deputy chief of staff, uh -huh. the president, uh, is looking for his assistant who happens to be overseas. She was involved in a terrorist attack and she's in a hospital and he's trying to locate her. Okay. And he walks in and he sees the duty nurse on station and asks her, where's, where's Donna at? And she says, why are you family? And, he's, and he, he flips. He's already stressed. And he says, I'm Josh Lyman, deputy, uh, deputy chief of staff to the president of the United States. I have the diplomatic rank of a three-star general. Where is she at? <laughs> and I was like, whoa. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's like that Maximus Decimus Meridius. Right, right. <laughs> you come in there knowing who you are and having your rank. And that lady snapped too. I was like, a three-star? You're just a deputy. How do you have the <laughs> political rank of a three-star? That's crazy. You got the rank of lieutenant general. I got to rethink my life choices. Right. No so that's one that sticks with me. But another one, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, where Obama had to fire one of his generals. I don't remember this. Uh, I want to say it was uh, Michael Flynn. 
Okay. But apparently there was some debacle. I think Flynn's people were, were uh, gave a, an interview where they talked bad about the president. Uh-huh. And the president was like, oh, we, we can't have your people's talking bad about me and my people's, baby. Come on here, bring it in. Okay. And so he pulls one of his generals from, uh, from CENCOM. The way the U.S. Uh, military is structured, the command structure, uh-huh. you put generals over certain theaters, what they call command zones. Okay. So there's like North Command, South Command, Central Command, Asia Command, Pacific Command, a few other, Africa Command. Okay. So he was over CEN- CENCOM or Central Command. So that, Central Command isn't like the Central Command? No. It's just geographic? Geographically, there's a, a zone or territory that he would be considered the highest ranking uh, military official that's responsible for that area. Gotcha. And then he has to work in conjunction with other generals that are responsible for other areas, and they report to an overseeing council. Okay. But Obama calls him over. He's a four-star, which means this dude has worked. Right. I mean, he's, he's a general. And, uh, I mean, let me, let me talk to you. But what was crazy <laughs> is Obama flew over there on Air Force One. All right. And the general shows up. And typically, uh, I guess with military requirements, if you are going to meet uh, a president or, or someone of official nature, uh-huh. you need to be in your dre- your class A's, okay. which is the dress uniform. And he shows up in his, his BTUs, which is like his, or uh, BDUs, which is battle dress uniform, like standard fatigues and all of that. Okay. He brings him on the plane. So he was underdressed. Yeah, he wasn't even dressed right. Like literally Obama got him and called him off the line like, mm-hmm, yeah, let me, let me talk to you for a minute. <laughs> well, can I change? Don't even worry about it. <laughs> yeah, come on, come on here on the plane. Okay. And flies him back and fires him. And not only fires him, there's a picture of it. <laughs> I was like, you got fired and you had a photographer there? That hurts. I was like, that's really bad. Because where do you go on the plane after your boss fires you? Right. You can't storm off. <laughs> you got secret service you got to worry about. Pull this thing over. Let me out. Let me out right here. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you you got your wings, I see. They, they right there. <laughs> they pin in your chest. I don't know about parachute, but we're going to see what you can do. Right. So I always found those those dynamics. You know what I mean? Interesting. Uh huh. Political power, natural power, technological power. But I think the uh, the other one would be spiritual power. Okay. What do you mean by spiritual power? Well, all of this, like I was saying just a moment ago, it all takes me into trying to understand God from a different perspective. Okay. And if He can create all of these things, if He can create thunder, you know, thunder clouds, if He can create the earth, if He can create the sun, if He can create all of these other stars that are that make our our sun look like a dandruff speck, who is He? You know, if He can create an animal that roars that stops another animal in its tracks, who is He? Right. Yes, he's very loving and very caring and he's very considerate and he's very gentle, but he's also very fierce. He is a warrior God. He fights. Right. He roars. I don't know if I, I mean, I want to hear it. I just don't want to direct it at me. Right. For me is cool. I'll, I'll stand back here. Right. And so. you yell at them guy. <laughs> right. And give me the, give me the divine earplugs. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate that too, because I was raised in a household and, and mainly, maybe it was because it was mainly my mom. Uh, she did the best that she could, mm-hmm. but she really pushed. And I guess like a lot of mainstream Christianity does now, the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. Right. So having gone through some rough things in my childhood, I was like, I don't want squishy Jesus. Especially not the emaciated one that you see like in a lot of Catholic, uh, you know, artwork. You don't want the one that looks like he just came out of a, you know, Sobibor or something. Right. Right. Like if I, if I'm, if I'm getting beat up or beat, 
And I just got this soft Jesus that only talks in a small, still small voice. He's supposed to save me? Right. I don't know about this. Mm-mm. So the, the scriptures and the aspects and, and the things like you're saying that really expose the, the raw power and intensity um, that our God has is really, it's, oddly, it's really comforting for me. The same for me. It's kind of why I get irritated sometimes when I see females sometimes try to truncate or, or stifle a little bit that masculine aspect. And I get it. You can't run around with your engine on four, you know, full bore open and just <laughs> messing up the environment for everybody. Nobody will have fun. Right. You know, but uh, understanding where that identity lies and what we're after, I think is, is important. So that there's a measure of sensitivity there. Right. So if we can identify with God in these various ways, then it pushes me to this idea of, well, what spiritual power one of my favorite, they say that when you have a favorite scripture, it tells you a lot about how God's created you. Okay. One of my favorite scriptures are when Jesus shows up. I think he crosses the lake of uh, Gethsemane or whatever. Uh-huh. Shows, excuse me, shows up to this, this lake and these two demon possessed dudes that nobody could control that are living butt naked in the tombs. They, they wild. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're doing with each other. They wild though. Right, right. <laughs> he steps foot on soil. And you know what scripture says? Every place that you put your foot, I'll give you. Uh-huh. There's a military aspect to him putting his foot down. He ain't even all the way out the boat. Right. Puts his foot down and the spiritual sources go, oh, what was that? And they come running and present themselves to him. I was like, that's not normally what you would do. If you were scared, you should go the other way. Right. Can Is it possible to be so afraid that you feel compelled to present yourself to the thing that's going to kill you? That's a whole nother level. That's, that's crazy. a whole nother level. So they show up and they are like, they start telling the spilling the goods. Right. Jesus ain't even really said nothing. He's just <laughs> looking at him like, mm, giving him that Samuel, you know, that Samuel Jackson sneak stink eye. Right. Right. And they're like, Jesus, son of the most high God, have you come to torture us before our dying? I was like, before, if he is here to torture you, how dumb can you be to show up and ask? <laughs> right. You're, you're early. <laughs> But I, since you're I, here, I wasn't due for a butt whooping until right. No kid does that. Right, every kid runs and is trying to get away. I was like, "That's dope," and he just stands there and he's like, "What's your name?" And they were like, "Legion," for we are many. Okay, can we go in the pigs? I was like, "That was the best idea you had." <laughs> they go in the pigs and they're they're fr- they're so frantically scared. I imagine the pigs go in a circle and they just happen to go off the cliff. And uh-huh. I was like, well, that makes no sense. You back in square one. I was like, that's pretty dope, Jesus. You just showed <laughs> up and they freaked out. Now, remember to us, they're always trying to make us think they're super powerful. Right. So, you know, you got the foaming at the mouth and the twirling at the head and running up the wall and looking crazy. You know, crazy. We'd be scared. Like, right. I don't want to see a demon. I never want to see that. Jesus just put a sandal down. Right. And they showed up like, oh, yes, Lord, Father, is it our time? <laughs> and I love, I love his answer. Because they're like, you know, please, you know, don't just cast us out. Send us into the pigs or whatever. And he just says, go. go. Right. Oh, that's so yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> it is so boss. Yes. He didn't even say, I mean, a one word answer. Right. You know, he's looking at you like, I'll be seeing you later. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh-huh. I got your number, baby. Legion. We don't hear about Legion no more. No more. <laughs> <laughs> and it was many of them. So, you know, that type of dude, I, I find that stuff interesting. Right. Now, there's a political setting in scripture where all of this like jumbles together. Okay. And that would be what you see in Psalms 82. 
Oh, Psalms 82. I know we've talked about this before. Yeah, that's that whole divine counsel thing. Oh, I've been waiting. I can't. I'm excited <laughs> to get into this. because It only took us an hour to get here. <laughs> but no, the divine counsel is dope. It's a dope idea. Right. I was blown away when I was first introdu- introduced to this, man. Uh, it's one of the few places in scripture where we get to see what goes on in what I like to call heaven's situation room. You know, it, 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 uh, it sends some energy bugs up my spine. All right. I remember when you first, I think you were the one that, that you were like, go read Psalms 82 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I read it and knowing full well, because it, it deals with Elohim and gods and stuff. And I was like, it, it kind of turns your, um, your sensitive Christian mind. If you're not a, uh, an astute thinking believer, right. It kind of turns your brain inside out a little bit. It does. Cause um, it's, it's the place where it says that God holds divine judgment amongst the gods. So in my mind, I've got God's taking, you know, God himself taking a seat at this huge oblong oval table that is like the divine version of what the president sits around when he has his cabinet meetings. Right. And he's got to have like this Jack Nicholson type of response. You see the camera come up from the table. It it pans up when we see God and he's sitting there and he's looking at all these divine beings that are, you know, part of the cabinet head. Uh-huh. And he ain't happy. Right. And which one of you am I going to have to deal with today? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is good. I didn't even know this happens. <laughs> like like General Flynn, he's like, come here. He's like, can I change first? Like, nope, you're good. Just nah, what nah, you got. Bring, bring your wings. <laughs> bring your wings. Bring, bring your wings. Oh, there's this up. Awesome. If you've never seen this movie, there's a, it's called Harlem Nights. I've seen bits and pieces. All right. There's a scene with Della Reese. I'm not going to quote it. <laughs> <laughs> there's a scene where she's about to go fight and Della Reese is, is big woman. She don't take no tea for the fever. Right. Uh-huh. And Della Reese tells, uh, she, t- she tells Eddie Murphy's character, bring it behind. nigga, bring it. <laughs> Come on. And afterwards, I don't want no hard feelings, but I'm gonna have to beat your behind and teach you some respect. And after I get done, you gonna respect me. All right. It's kind of the feeling I have when God's sitting there and he's taking his seat amongst the gods. Like that concept alone flies in the face of contemporary Christian thinking. Right. <laughs> it's because um, typically we have just Sunday school theology. Right. Where we dumb down or we normalize things or we kind of make excuses for things that don't, that don't make sense. Um, but we have, it goes against scripture because we have... Um, Yahweh that says he's the most high, right? The most high. What if he's just, I mean, it it really pushes us past our elementary understanding of, of God or of what gods are celestial beings and and all of that. Right. Uh, So that's not to say that these lower G gods are supposed to be worshiped as the most high. So let me put that right out in front. we're, We're not, we're not saying that Christianity is really polytheistic. It's not. There is one true God, one um, uncreated entity. But obviously they exist, and people do worship them all over the world, which is partly to blame, at least in my opinion, is why things have gotten so bad. You know, I'm really glad you said that because I don't want people to forget. We're, we take a little bit of time here, but we're still answering the, the big question of how things got so bad. And the idea of the divine counsel is a key part in answering that question. Uh, Christopher, maybe you should read the section of, of Holy Record in its entirety. Sure. Why not? So Psalms 82, 1 through 8 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. 
How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Yo, if that doesn't send chills up your spine, I don't know what does. It's intense. Yeah, that's crazy. That's a power move, but it's so good. Notice how God's words to the celestial beings here on the council indicate that the council has duties and responsibilities on both heaven and earth, and that it was their charge to rule over man with the same measure of righteousness that the Most High would have, and yet failed miserably. This had to be one of the primary contributors to how things got so bad. Had to be. Oh, dude, you're 110 right. You know, and it's it's important to delineate here that these beings that are that apparently are being judged by God are not the same as as the beings that you find being talked about in Genesis six. Okay, which we're on our way to get to. Um, these tend to be be the beings that are probably referred to after Genesis ten, uh, when God splits up the nations and had actually put divine beings over them to rule. Okay. And uh, there's a school of thought that suggests that these beings were actually not even uh, righteous angels that ended up becoming unrighteous. It's actually believed that these were already fallen angels that were put in place and that God called them to called them the task on the fact that you still aren't judging right just to show how far off you are. Kind of like how he gives the law for us to show us how bad we are. Uh huh. Same thing for them. Okay. So it wasn't like they just messed up and he was upset. No, you you were already messing up, and you know what the divine standard is. Right. You you understand what I'm saying? No, that makes sense. It seems like a lot of these idea ideas are met with just visceral rejection mm -hmm. to people that are already convinced based on prior conditioning that it's just not possible. Right. And the crazy thing is that it's in Holy Scripture, which means we should probably take it more seriously. Absolutely. But here's the thing, man. Genesis 6, which is where the this record is is, this is contained that I was just referring to, uh, it's such a critical component, not just answering the big question of how do things get so bad, but in understanding the Bible as a whole. That without it, most of Scripture just doesn't seem to make much sense. Because much of Holy Scripture is a response to what happened in Genesis 6. In fact, in my opinion, Genesis 6 incursion is one of the most important sections of Holy Scripture to come to terms with. That, that's a mouthful. That, that's saying quite a bit for one section. It is, but Genesis, the Genesis 6 incursion was so crucial because it really is the, the stepping off point. Uh, that's what set off a campaign to overthrow God's created order, and it set in motion what I'll call the golden age of sin which is like this tidal wave of wickedness and debauchery that is so perverse that it would sweep over all humanity all the way down to just eight people being free from it, causing God to have to zero the clock and wipe everything out, save the, for the aforementioned eight souls. That's a hell of a campaign. Dude, this is good. We've got to get into this Genesis 6 thing for sure. Yes, sir. Let's do it. I really like Genesis 6, at least... A lot of what happens in Genesis 6, um, people find it, usually people find it pretty interesting, especially mm -hmm. people that have been 
in the church for a while, if you're an open thinker. Because I remember, if you probably remember as well, good sir, but um, we had a lot of parking lot conversations when our yeah. friendship started. Yeah. And we talked about Genesis 6 and giants and Nephilim and, and all of this strange stuff. And it actually got a lot of attention. Yeah, I was like really uncomfortable with that. I remember that. Yeah, people were like, what are you guys talking about? What? I didn't know that was in the Bible. Right. Because the church really doesn't touch this very often, if ever. I don't know if I've ever heard like a a, a classic Sunday morning service deal with Genesis 6 at all. No, I think you're right. Uh, neither have I. And, you know, Genesis 6 kind of forces this hermeneutical quandary for uh, a believer in hermeneutics for a person who's never heard that term. That's the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, uh, especially of biblical or ancient literary texts. So it's broken down into two types. If you have high form hermeneutics, you take things serious, but not necessarily literal, but you'll allow the document or, or what's written to interpret itself. And uh, you don't impose allegory on the text. Right. Cause there is like, even for those that take it serious, there is, I think Chuck Missler says there's, what, 200 different figures of speech in the Bible? Correct. That's crazy. Right, but you allow the text to let you know where it's using a figure of speech. Right. Instead of assuming that everything is, is figurative. If you if you take more of the things that are, are, are allegorical approach, then that's considered a low form of hermeneutics. Okay. So Genesis 6, from my perspective, and this is all for all of scripture, I tend to take a high form of hermeneutics. But because of that, for the average person, it pushes them into a position of, can I really accept these outlandish ideas, these things, and I'm outlandish, I'm putting that in quotations, these things that seem to fly in the face of the, the modern mind. Okay. Uh, you know, this idea that you, you got angels and they're coming down and they're doing things with people and you've got... Uh, You've got widespread wickedness that maybe is coming about from some nefarious practices and occult magic, magical rituals that are being enacted. And can we believe that it goes all the way down to eight people? Can we really believe that God called all the animals, right, and put them on an ark? I right. mean, when, where does that happen? And then who sealed up the ark? Let's talk about that. How did the door get closed? I mean, we talk about giants? What do you mean giants? I ain't seen a giant. We talk about Shaq? I don't think we're talking about Shaq. What are you talking about? This section of scripture has a lot of concepts that unfortunately for a society and a person who has been inundated with societal values that are built off of, uh, let's call it physics. And it's built off the idea that the natural realm is all there is. And from the natural realm, science is the only arbiter of truth. You know, what J.P. Moreland calls scientific naturalism. These right. things are, are very materialistic in, in its approach and its worldview. Right. For a person that comes out of Western culture, which is extremely materialistic and is based off of scientific naturalism, coming to grips with things that are supernatural in nature is very hard. Right. And it can be very challenging. And Genesis 6 kind of puts its, its foot, metaphorically speaking, in your teeth. Right. And if you have a problem with dealing with those type of concepts, then it's, it can be really challenging for the, for the, the person to come to the, come to grips with that. So the Genesis six incursion is preserved in two primary records. The first one is in Genesis six, obviously, and the others in a, in a book that we'll talk about here in just a moment, but the Genesis six record, you can break it down, uh, 
across the section is from from verse one to verse six. Verses one through four basically record the incursion, and verses five through eight are what I like to call the battle damage assessment. That's the verses dealing with Noah. Okay. But what we have here is right off the bat, we got this idea that when men began to multiply over the face of the earth, daughters were born to those people. And the sons of God saw that those daughters uh, were extremely beautiful, right. extremely beautiful, which makes perfect sense because at this point in the um, genetic record, we have very little genetic corruption. Right. And so I, I can only being this far downwind and noticing how beautiful women are now. Right. I cannot imagine <laughs> how beautiful these women had to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, as an aside, it's kind of a funny thing. I don't think women really appreciate oftentimes the beauty that they contain. You know, I think between the two genders, one of the things that God allows each gender the privilege of doing is bearing the expressive privilege of a particular trait, you know, a primary trait of his. So for, for males, it's primarily God's strength Okay. that we get to exemplify. Not to say that we're not beautiful. I'm beautiful. Yeah, yeah very <laughs> Uh, slow your roll, though, player. That is not to say that I'm not beautiful. Hey, I never said that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You could have said we. I know that you did not. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but it, it's the strength component that we get. But then when it comes to females, it's really the beauty aspect of God. If you think a woman's beautiful, I do. Imagine, I do too. Imagine <laughs> how beautiful God has to be. And this kind of seems like a foreign concept. You're like, God? Nah, I can't quite see him as beautiful. But if you can create a creature as beautiful as women are, and I mean, women have, have such beauty, they can pause a man in his tracks. Yeah. You know, or we forget to talk. Yeah. We, we forget to just <laughs> to speak, and, and all of a sudden we're just standing there just blinking. Just and, blinking. Right, and it probably drives women insane. But that's part of the unique um, privilege that they have bearing that aspect of God. If you're talking about women in the very early part of the history of mankind, they had to be extremely beautiful. Right. And it's interesting that the record seems to suggest that there was a temptation made where, uh, as it says in, in Genesis 6, that the sons of God came down. They saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took wives of all which they chose. Right. It's, it's one thing to turn a dude's head, but when you're turning a celestial being's head, yeah. like they're passing by Jupiter and Ooh, snap that neck that? right around. Right. So you ladies out there that are listening, if you're having a bad day and you're not feeling like you all that and you, you listen to the enemy talk about, oh, you look fat today. You got this, Mark, and this problem and all of that. You slow your roll. You, you listen to what I'm saying. You are beautiful. And if you ain't careful... You might catch the attention of some beings you ain't trying to catch. <laughs> so keep that beauty on lock. Right, right. No doubt. But mm. this action caused a catastrophic cosmic rift in the fabric of creation. This whole thing about angels coming down and taking uh, wives of all they chose. Because there are other versions of scripture that paint this activity a little more clearly. Now, the the, the verse that we're referring to right now, or, or the, uh, not the verse, but the version of scripture we're referring to right now, in the English, it's kind of lost. You hear that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took wives of all they chose. That doesn't sound that bad. Right. It sounds kind of soft, I think. Right. But when you understand the original language, 
the dynamic complexity becomes more apparent. Right. First off, the term sons of God, the Benihai Elohim. I like that one. That's a good phrase. And we owe Mr. Missler for that. Yes. Uh, that term is a specific reference to what we will call celestial beings. Right. Some, it is not about human human beings. Right. So it is the sons of God, which what the average person would call an angel. Right. Came down. Well, first saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they decided to come down and take wives of all that they chose. This little phrasing is interesting because it implies either the wife was offered, you know, like women were offering themselves, or maybe they were already married and these angels came down and still took them. Right. It just says that they took what they wanted. That Pretty doesn't much. necessarily mean that everyone was on the same page. It doesn't. <laughs> you know, some people could have gone willingly, others not so willingly. Right. Absolutely. But this section of scripture causes a huge contention within Christianity. Because most people and the modern mind balks at the idea of angels having sex with human beings. Right. Uh, there are people that say it's an absolute impossibility. And they, you have something to say? Oh, well, I was just going to say, but it's in, it's in the Bible. Right. But for, for modern Christians, that's not always enough. <laughs> right. So uh, we have a tendency to, to bend scripture to fit our mind instead of what we should be doing is bending our mind to fit scripture. I like that, but you're absolutely right. Um, a lot, but here's the thing. A lot of times people reference, uh, what is it, Matthew, I want to say 23, 22 or 23, where Jesus is being asked, uh, yeah, Matthew 22, 23 through, through 31, Jesus is being quizzed by the Sadducees. Um uh, and that's the religious, not the religious, wow, the religious <laughs> elect of his day. Right. And what they are doing is basically they raise this theological question to Jesus. They say, you know, if a man dies and he has no kids and his brother has to marry his wife and raise up seed on behalf of his brother, um, let's say there's a situation where there are seven brethren and the first, when he married a wife deceased and having none left, left his wife and, uh, left the wife into the brother. And likewise, it happened with the, the second one and the third one all the way down to the seventh. And then the woman died. So basically she had been the wife, legal wife right. of all seven brothers, not all at once. That's important. It's not right. a polygamous situation. <laughs> right. And just to, to get out in front of this a little bit, it was typical for the culture that the responsibility fell on a sibling. Like, it's not just weird that she kept it in the family like it like it would be in today's society, right? Right, because the, and that's a great question. The point was to make sure that your brother had lineage. Right. So it wasn't about, good, you get to go into your brother's <laughs> wife that you've been eyeing for a while. Right. That that wasn't the point. The point was if, if your brother died and he didn't have kids, he didn't have a legacy or, or a lineage to call his own, as a fellow brother, you could step into his stead and provide his his former wife an heir. Right. And and not just that you could, but it was a responsibility. Like that's what you were supposed to do. Right. Because there's a story in the Old Testament where somebody pulled out instead of doing what they were supposed to do. Right. Because they were in it just for sex. Right. And God was like, nope, you're yeah, done. He, he was pissed because <laughs> that guy was violating, was that the sin of Onan? He, he was violating, he was taking advantage of this sacred act and just using it to have sex with his sister-in-law. Yeah. Which is pretty disgusting. Don't do that. No. Uh, 
So basically, they raise this question. This lady has been the legal wife of all seven brothers who consecutively die. And so when it comes to the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? Because all of them were married to her. Yeah. And Jesus responds back. Uh, look, first off, you don't know the scriptures. And, and you also don't know who God is. You don't know the power of God. <laughs> he just hits him in the teeth. I love I love this section right. so much. But he says in the resurrection, they're neither, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage. But as the angels of God in heaven are, uh, so, they, so they are. Right. And so it produces this idea that angels don't have sex. Right. But well, unfortunately, if you look. Well, here, here just for, I don't mean to interrupt you, but no, I'm, I'm going to finish this thought. The reason that it produces that is because people kind of have this, this train of thought, which is that, and from a Christian perspective, you can only have sex when you're married. And if in the resurrection you're not married, then you're not having sex. And if angels are not married and are not given in marriage, then they can't have sex either. But to a person who's carefully listening, notice that my language changed. Okay. It started out, you cannot have sex versus you're not having sex. Those right. are not the same thing. Right. See, not being permitted legally to engage in a sexual act is not the same as saying you do not have the ability to engage in that act. That's true. And that's where I think the logical, the logical problem comes up when Christians make the assumption that angels cannot have sex. That's not what scripture says. Scripture says that the angel in he the angels in heaven are not given in marriage, which by extensions means they are not having sex. It does not mean they are not capable of having sex. Right. Secondly, the record in Genesis six is not referring to the angels in heaven. It is referring to fallen angels. Oh, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that one. Yeah. And that's a huge dynamic difference. Cause doesn't it say, I don't, I don't know I, what you have as notes, but that um, the angels left their heavenly bodies or left their. They left their heavenly abode. Abode. But yeah. So the idea is that they, they left their realm of existence. They left the, the existential realm that God had created for them uh -huh. and decided to go into a realm that was not permitted for them. I mean, would that, does that play on uh, what you're saying? Because they're not angels in heaven. They yeah. left that abode of heaven. Correct. To do the dirty. Yeah. <laughs> not only to do the dirty, but they're no longer angels that are obedient and subjected to the sovereignty, willfully subjected to the sovereignty of God. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. There's a lot of them weird theological big words. No, no, I got it. I got it. I think it's important because once we jump back to, to Genesis 6, this is going to be a key component here. Okay. The idea that angels came down from, from heaven and inserted themselves into our dimensional... The no, no, no. <laughs> Not yet. Oh, my bad. Yeah, that was the second assertion. <laughs> but insert themselves into our dimensional plane of existence. And then by, quote, unquote, extension, <laughs> inserted themselves into human women. Okay. Right? Yeah. Now, now that's a, a very common actual story. When you start looking over the cultures, uh, multiple cultures of the planet, you see that this is a very ancient idea that is very popular across the globe. Yeah. That gods are coming down and they're having sex with women in order to produce this this offspring. Now, it's the offspring that they produce that's critical to, to wrap your mind around. Scripture calls that offspring the Nephilim. And yes. you'll hear this phrase a lot. Uh, what that essentially means is that the life forms that were produced were unsanctioned. 
Okay. They were fallen. Nephilim comes from the Hebrew word nephal, which means fallen ones. Like when, um, was it Rebecca fell off of her camel when she met Isaac? Yeah, not fallen like that. Well, no, it's the same. It's the same root word. Yeah, well, I'm just saying it's not that type of fall. I don't want you to think like <laughs> like there was an angel and riding a heavenly donkey and fell off, and now he's a nephilim. No, I just I just <laughs> the, the meaning of the word is to fall. Well, it, whether yeah. from your heavenly state or from a donkey or a camel or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when applied to this, it has a a deeper connotate connotative value. Okay. Uh, which is that not only are these fallen forms, these are evil forms. Because okay. these are life forms that were created again. They were unsanctioned. God never intended. Mm-hmm, God never intended for celestial beings to have sexual contact with terrestrial beings. Just like God does not intend for terrestrial beings to have cross species contact sexually with each other. There are divine barriers put in place. Okay, that makes sense. And what you end up having is these these celestial beings uh, begin to transgress and open up forbidden gates. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, it'd be like if we had. Well, we're slowly moving towards that technology now. We but are. If if we were to have sex with, say, a cow, and have it produce cow human offspring, hybrid, right? Probably wouldn't be a good thing. Right. No, no, you're right. And, and that's really what we're, that's really a sickening thing that we are pushing towards um, on a weird variety of levels, not necessarily in a sexual sense, but in the unification Sometimes. sense. I mean, there's bestiality that's going on, but I mean, uh, on a large scale, societies are pushing more towards hybrid uni- unification across okay. species. Like growing human ears on mice and things like that? Yep, but I don't want to get too far ahead. All right, my bad, my bad. So we got the whole cosmic rift thing. God gets pissed off, and he basically says, my my spirit's not going to strive with man. Uh, he's going to have only 120 years. Now, a lot of people, if I can jump in here, because mm-hmm. I've heard it taught that um, God makes this statement, and it means that humans are only going to live... 120 years, or that's like the, that's the speed limit, <laughs> the age limit for the humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really think that that's a misunderstanding of what God's saying. I would agree with you. Essentially, it's a 120 year stay of execution that was imposed on mankind. Okay. Because what happened here was so disastrous that it spread wickedness everywhere. And this is where you get giants being produced on the earth. In fact, scripture says that, that there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. Again, reiterating the fact that the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So God basically is like, I'm a zero the clock. You got 120 years to get your affairs in order. Either you can repent or you can die. <laughs> yeah. It's essentially your choice. And so you you have also at that time, apparently, God also getting with Noah and starting construction of the ark. So did he work on the ark for 120 years? I think he worked on the ark for about a hundred years. Okay, I thought I saw somewhere that Noah preached for a hundred and twenty years. Maybe I'm. He may have preached, but I think but he, just he, the ark was, was about for, like from the time he was like five hundred. Okay. He also birthed his three his three sons at that point too. Okay. He must have been really busy building the ark, if in a hundred year span you can only squeeze out three kids. Right. But you you need <laughs> just a really little sad. bit of help. <laughs> so three kids and some angelic help, you should be all right. 
Uh, that's funny. So scripture goes on to record the fact that God saw that the wickedness of man was so great in the earth that every part of what we thought about apparently was only evil. And that's a major statement because you can jump to someone that we think collectively is evil, like the Nazis. Uh-huh. You'd have to imagine at some point they gave a good gift. They had a laugh. There right. was a party. They saved a kitten from a tree or something. something. You know, it wasn't a Jewish kitten, but they saved a kitten. Right. You know, it wasn't like they were evil all the time. Right. This is a categorical difference, like an exponential difference of uh, of evil from what we experience and what we can imagine. Okay. The, I, just, I just had this thought. Do you remember there's a video? It, it was credited to Bill Gates, but it wasn't actually Bill Gates. But it's a, a video of a Department of Defense um, presentation about... I think it was through vaccines that you could alter the way that religious radicals behave. Do you remember? Seeing, yeah. So, uh, I mean, the fact checkers are like, this isn't true because it's not Gates, but it's this idea that by, by changing um, or infecting someone with, with a serum, or I don't know if it was DNA based or not, but the Nephilim, you know, infected man. And uh, scripture even says that all flesh was corrupted. We don't know what levels of technology were available to them at the time. But if we're emerging on technologies now that can actually alter the way that you think or prevent someone that is a religious radical to make them not a religious radical, like there's a huge issue. If, like you're saying, it's not just Nazis are bad people, but like all their thoughts all of the time were evil. So they weren't capable of functioning outside of that depravity. Right. Which again is, is a, a is a touch point back to our larger question of how things got so bad. This is really the, the stepping off point of how this is how you can have so much wickedness just within the heart of man. There was external wickedness going on as well, which we'll talk about here in a moment. Okay. But within the heart of man, how man could get so corrupted. It is because the bloodline got corrupted and it started first with uh, rebellious angels coming to the planet engaging in sexual intercourse with women, producing an unsanctioned life form that then begin to pollute the human race. Okay. And those life forms also reproduced. Right, right. So their bloodlines begin to flow through humanity. Okay. So is that what it means by all flesh was corrupted? Yeah. By this but, intermingling of... Well, all flesh is broader than just man, mankind. Okay, fair enough. Good point. So, yeah, we'll talk about that here in just a second. <clears throat> I keep hating to say we're going to talk about it in a second. So <laughs> There's I'm just so much to, to talk about. I'm going to need you to stop jumping out in front of me, uh, baby. My bad, my bad. But, yeah, we got <clears throat> we got so much to get into in so little time. So I'm going to probably go a little bit faster here. All right. Um, so the next part of Scripture that you do have is that the Lord's talk. it talks about how God was repentant of the fact that he made mankind which also causes people some theological problems. It caused me a problem when I read over this for the show. I was like, wait a minute. I don't necessarily agree with this uh, interpretation. Right. But, like but God, then you corrected me. Like God's like, oh man, I made a mistake. Right. Like who's he sorry to? Who's right. he repenting to? I had the same problem the first time I read it. Uh, it, it took a while to, for the Holy Spirit to, to, to take me to the point of understanding, no, really what this means is there was a turning around or, or a change of mind. Which makes sense why modern Christians misunderstand it, because a lot of them feel sorry but don't change their behavior. Right, and God's looking at this and going, you know what? This is so bad. It's not even just this is so bad. You have to have a sensitivity for the concept of holiness. 
and you and I have talked about this for, you know, at length before, uh-huh. but this idea guy was talking to me one time and he was basically asking me, he was pushing this concept to me of why he has a problem with sin. And I'm like, why? You know, I, I, I get that sometimes things are bad, but sometimes they're not that bad. Uh-huh. And to sum a story up, basically what he said was when you spend the, when you're so invested and you intentionally create things to function perfectly, you can't tolerate the slightest bit of imperfection in how those things function. Right. Now, not coming from a tyrant perspective, but coming from the perspective of you're not okay with it. Okay. You know, you're not happy. It's not something you just overlook. You're like, oh, that's just a 1%, 1% deviation. No, I've designed everything for optim- to be optimized. Yeah. And so when things run even at a 1% sub-optimization, I have a problem with that. I like the analogy, <clears throat> excuse me, of if you have something in your teeth. Because God gave me that. I think I might have mentioned it in a show before. But, you know, you work hard and your teeth are supposed to be white or whatever. I think most people can can agree with this or relate to this comparison. But all it takes is an itty-bitty speck in your teeth and between your teeth, mm. and it's not okay. Right. And it bothers you. And if you can't get it out, it changes how you can't smile if you're around people. Like, just even though 99.9% of your teeth are perfect, that just that speck, just, mm, you got to fix it. You can't. You can't leave it there. No, that's a good, that's a really good analogy. And I'd agree a hundred percent. That's really how God looks at sin. That's how he looks at corruption. But what we're talking about here in Genesis six, this is not a speck. This is not even a missing tooth. (laughs) This is like, you know, when you have the charcoal toothpaste. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is an entire mouthful of nothing, but just dark charcoal, black sin. Right. You got to fix this. You have to. And so this is where God goes, all right, we about to change course here. That whole we're about to change course, that's repentant. Okay. That turn away. You know what? Now nah, we ain't going this way no more. We, we, things about to change. That makes sense. Now, I do think that it grieved God, and that's what Scripture says, too. His heart was hurt. You don't want to see the type. It's not just that you're not doing things my way. That's kind of the selfish way the contemporary people, the modern mind might envision that it's not just that I'm hurt. Cause I can't have my way and you guys aren't doing what I want you to do. And your, your race is just messing things up. Right. It is also, I can feel the pain being inflicted by the violence that is coming about by way of the sin produced by the Nephilim and what they are teaching. Right. I can feel my creation hurting. Right. Cause it was designed to function in a beautiful fashion. Right, and when you mess that up, you can't make it better. All you can do is make it worse. Right, I can hear the screams of children being sacrificed. Uh, I can feel their pain. Yeah. You know, things that are being done in coalition, or not coalition, but in conjunction with the the religious sector and the religious institution established by the Nephilim and their their fallen angelic fathers. Right, and the women that, that we talked about that he made so beautiful— are getting taken and abused. Right, because there are records that these women once impregnated, when they bought these giants to term, they couldn't they couldn't have them naturally. Really? Yeah. And so they were, you know, you get that alien idea, that motif of the alien ripping through from the abdomen. Uh-huh. It's it was said that the giants actually either clawed or ate their way out. Interesting. Um that I hate to admit that I know this. <laughs> okay. But the the Twilight movies, mm-hmm. the idea was that she got impregnated by a vampire or whatever. And they were concerned that it would 
killer on the way out. It's interesting how these these truths these little ideas start showing back up. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So that you get to this point now in scripture where God says, "All right, uh, you know what? I got to destroy everything. I got to reset the clock. Uh, I'm wiping everything off the face of the earth. Man, beast, every creeping thing, fowls of the air, don't matter. Everything's got to go because everything's been polluted and corrupted. Okay, they have the, the Nephilim is so thoroughly polluted my creation. Got to go. All right, everyone but Noah." Noah's the linchpin in the plan. Because doesn't it say, and hopefully I'm not getting too far out ahead of you. You are. All right, I'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does say that. But, <laughs> yeah, we'll, 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 we'll get there. Okay, okay. So <clears throat> that basically covers the, the Genesis record. Now, the second, uh, the second place where these events are, are recorded that lead up to the flood, including Genesis 6, that's found in the book of Enoch. All right. First book. What's the book of Enoch, Jason? What do you think? I know everything? Yes. No, I do not. <laughs> I know very little, thank you. Was it Vody Bauckham that apologists know things about things they don't even know about? I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to get there. like that, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, everything. <laughs> uh, so what you got here with uh, the Book of Enoch is basically a collection of three books uh, with the strong, first, second, third Enoch, with the strongest emphasis being placed on um, the first book, which deals with the events leading up to the flood. It's considered to be a very controversial book. Right. And many wonder if it was inspired or not. Okay. Now, I don't hold to the to the idea of it being inspired. For me, I don't think it's inspired. Right. I don't either. Right. But I, I do hold to the idea that it's a very useful book for understanding the mindset of the writers of the Bible. Yep. I would agree. And the Holy Spirit thought it useful enough to include it in Holy Scripture where it's quoted in the book of Jude. You know, Scripture quotes it, uh, First Enoch in, in Jude 14 and 15. And where they're talking about uh, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, being pro- prophesying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. Uh-huh. That's lifted uh, from first Enoch 1, 9. Okay. So whatever Enoch, the, the first book of Enoch is, whatever, how much truth it contains, at least the Holy Spirit looked at it and said, all right, it's at least good enough that I can quote from it. Right. There and, might be something in here worthwhile. Right. And likewise, the writers... Of, of scripture, at least we're familiar with that content. Right. So I think for a serious-minded believer, they should also familiarize themselves with it to at least understand the contextual framework from which the writers of the Old Testament and the New were working from when it came to this particular book. And again, that's First Enoch, not necessarily Second and Third. Okay. Now Jude six and seven and First Peter uh, six and eighteen also use Enoch to elucidate on events that led up to the flood which I think puts us on safe ground to get into some of that material. Okay. Because kind of like my dad would say, man, you chew the chicken, spit out the bones. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, they don't like that much. With the baby or the bathwater. The the baby doesn't like getting thrown out with the bathwater. Yeah, exactly. So you preserve the baby. <laughs> you know, if it, if it the basic idea is if it adds insight while not contradicting Scripture, then use it. And if you find where it does contradict, then defer to Scripture. Right. Fairly simple. Yeah, it's not bad. But... What I would say, uh, one, of the, one of the things to be mindful of, and people have a problem with this, uh, is the idea that Enoch is considered uh, a pseudepigrapha work. A what? A what? 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 Exactly. <laughs> a pseudepigrapha. I was so mad. I still don't remember what it means, but the first time you mentioned it, you did it in passing. Like, oh, you should just know this. And I'm like, man. <laughs> <sighs> Got me again. <laughs> 
<clears throat> I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, a pseudepigraphal work is a work that uh, it, it belongs. It doesn't mean false writings in the sense that everything is is uh, spurious. What it means is that it's being attributed to an author or the person that's named on the book is not the author that wrote it. Okay, so it's like written from the position of Enoch, but it clearly wasn't Enoch that wrote the book. Is that essentially what you're saying? And it was a common practice uh, in ancient times to write books like that. And actually, within the canon, there are books that would qualify as being pseudepigraphal. Okay. Like uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, Job, and even Joshua. No, that makes sense. Right? Uh Uh-huh. So it doesn't mean that that you have to necessarily discard the work. It doesn't mean that it's a literary forgery. Um. in fact, according to a guy, what's the name, D.A. Carson, he said that a work written or modified with the intent to deceive would qualify as a literary forgery. All literary forgeries are pseudepigrapha, but not all pseudepigraphas are literary forgeries. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh-huh. So I, I think first, Enoch, for the sake of our discussion here, uh, something we need to get into. So what does the book record? First, Enoch. All right. I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this because it's contained between chapters 6 and 16. I don't want to read all of that. You don't want to read 16 chapters? Well, that would be 10. Oh, 6 and 16. My bad. I just started at <laughs> 1. This math thing. Man, this this show does something to, to math in my brain. Oh, it's embarrassing. Uh, it's okay. What is pie? Jeez. Something to eat later. I guess. Uh, anyway. Here, here's the cool thing. Uh First Enoch 6 almost beautifully parallels Genesis 6. And so it adds a lot of insight almost in a synchronized fashion. Uh, It talks again about how the children of men uh, were multiplying the days and beautiful daughters were born to them. And the angels, the children of heaven saw, and they lusted after them. Okay. And they came to choose any wives that that they wanted amongst the children of men, and they begot children. But then it begins to list some of the angels that were involved in this. And it's really interesting. One of the leaders of this particular group, Samjaza, as he's called, uh, was a bit afraid to actually take on this task of coming down and having sex with women. He was afraid because of what God would probably do to him. Yeah, that's a good fear to have. It is. And basically it's recorded. Enoch says, I fear that uh, that that you guys won't actually go through with this and I'm going to be the only one standing here to pay the penalty. Oh, so no, he wasn't afraid of doing it. He no, was no, afraid no. that he was going to be the, the only, only one. one. Right. Misery loves company. <clears throat> Interesting. So at this point, these group of angels, about 200 of them, they form a pact. They take an oath okay. amongst each other. And it's like the first time you start to come in, into contact with this idea of an, of an oath. Okay. I think this is why there's a problem with it in scripture, why you're told not to. Right. But I think this is probably the root of it. Okay. But they take an oath and they bind themselves with a curse. Huh. And they agree to do this thing no matter the cost. And so 200 of these angels, which are, which are called watcher angels, okay. decide to descend onto Mount Hermon. All right. And this is a peak in Israel. Mount Hermon is actually still there today. Okay. And it's interesting. Out of all the places that you could decide to land, why land here? Yeah. Mount Hermon sits on the 33rd parallel. 33 is a major occult number because it harkens back to the one third concept, 
one third of the angels being loyal, disloyal to God and loyal to Lucifer. Okay. So you see there that there's even with the geography, there's right. spiritual significance to where they decide to actually land and, and carry out this uh, tra- travesty. Yeah. That they commit against God. And okay. apparently this mm-hmm. happens in the days of Jared. So if you're following your, uh, <laughs> right. If you're following your, your, your biblical chronology, Jared was before uh, Noah. He was before. He was the one right before Enoch. Right? Enoch, right. Yeah. He was, he was num- Enoch's number father. six. Yeah. He was Enoch's father. <laughs> okay. So he would have been Noah's great grandfather or great, great. I'm sorry. He would have been Noah's great, great grandfather. Okay. So it's said that in his day, this is when the angels came down. The Genesis six incursion occurred. Interesting. And so it's down the is down the line a little bit then from Adam. Because like in my mind, it happens just as quickly as it as the fall. Right. Like they get kicked uh, like out of the garden. The, fall, the first baby girl and the angels are like, "What? She didn't even get to grow up. That's horrible." <laughs> well, I mean, well, that takes a turn out of order. But no, that's interesting. I didn't realize that it was so many generations down the line. Yeah, it it, it is, um, and apparently. When they do this, Enoch records 20 leaders, which they call the princes of 10. Okay. So each of these, I guess, had uh, 10 angels underneath them. Interesting. Which would constitute the 200. Okay. That came down. Right. The It lists a whole bunch of names in Enoch of, of these different angels. I'm, I'm not going to read them all. Um, but there is one that I find interesting, and that's Azazel. Azazel? Azazel's mentioned. It says, ascribe all sin to Azazel. Now, to me, I don't get why you would do that. I thought you would ascribe all sin to Lucifer. That's what makes sense to me. Right. But if if you go further into the text, it talks about what things these angels did with mankind. It wasn't just having sex with women that they did. Okay. See, that would be the the initial sin that they did that created the Nephilim. Okay. But then they expanded their sin conquest and they began to teach their <clears throat> their human wives, if any survived, or the ones that, not the ones who survived, but prior to their death, they taught them in exchange for, exchange for the wives allowing access to their body. Uh-huh. The angels taught secret occult knowledge to the wives, basically making them uh, witches, very right. powerful witches. That sounds like common practice. In witchcraft today. Yeah, I wonder why. Huh. But they taught very interesting arts to mankind as a whole. Okay. Now, for Azazel, mm-hmm. said they taught men how to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the, the metals of the earth and the art of working with them. Uh, bracelets and ornaments and the use of, uh, what is it, uh, atomony and the beautifying of the eyelids and all kinds of costly stones and, and coloring of clothing. And, and then arose much wickedness and fornication as a result. Okay. I'd like to add here, um, geographic um, expeditions or our understanding of ancient man, even, I don't want to say it makes sense of it, but it corroborates this kind of story mm-hmm. because ancient Egypt and ancient Sumer, we the the earliest civilizations that we can find just began. Like there's not a ramp up you know, as uh, you would think from an evolutionary perspective that, you know, you'd bang two rocks together and then you'd make them sharper and whatever. There wasn't this ramp up to develop society. There was all of the sudden you had Sumer 
in Egypt, these fully functioning um, civilizations where they did just what you were saying, where they were able to make swords and, you know, they had these technologies and functioning governments and all of that. So this isn't just this crazy story in a vacuum. Right. That's all I had. Sorry. (laughs) No, that was good. So what we have is like I was saying, you, you got Azazel teaching these particular traits, but then he's not the only one. You have uh, some Jaza taught enchantments and root cuttings. Amaros taught the resolving of enchantments. So basically one angel teaches how to cast spells. The other one teaches how to get out of them. Interesting that it's not the same entity. Right. I wonder if they had any beef between them. (laughs) Uh, Another angel taught the, he taught astrology. Another one taught constellations. Then you have the teaching of mixing of roots My whole little thing just messed up here. That's not good. Technology. Did they teach how to make an iPad too? Because sometimes I wonder. (laughs) Right? I wish. Where was that? I mean, they say that. Okay, I got it. The emblem of Apple is an apple. So another one taught uh, was astrology and then the constellations. Uh, Another one, the knowledge of the clouds. Another one, the signs of the earth. Uh, Shemael taught the, the signs of the sun and Syriel, the, the course of the moon. All of these things were taught to corrupt mankind. In fact, what's interesting, the book of Enoch basically says at one point, God's talking to these angels and said, you know what? You taught mankind things that they were never supposed to know. In fact, you took secrets from heaven and you took worthless secrets and used it to lead man, mankind astray. Interesting. I was like, wait, these things are worthless? Huh. That's fascinating. Right. Because we're normally in awe of these type of things. Yeah. And to think that these are just garbage principles, not even things a guy would be like, oh, I get it. I wonder if this adds, I don't want to say adds more credibility, but in the canonized text, it, you know, it says that, um, what in Proverbs that all things are vanity. Um, but even, what does it say? Why am I always trying to say things that I, I'm not for sure about? But it talks you about take better notes. I really should. But it talks about the the knowledge of man, um, being vain or incomplete or something like that. Wow, I probably shouldn't have even said anything. <laughs> All right, I get your point. But no, so, so the Bible it doesn't condemn the knowledge of man, but it kind of puts it in its place. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would make sense in 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 light of this if it actually came from a dark place. Like it's, it's absolutely useless in in the grand scheme of things. Right. And what's interesting is if you take by extension, okay, so these are the watcher class angels um, that were disloyal to God okay. and sided with Satan who in the beginning with mankind tempted man with secret knowledge. Yeah. In the garden. Right. So God told you not to, not to do anything with this tree paraphrasing. Right. Tell you what, if you if you if you eat the tree, you'll be just like him. You'll know everything. You'll you'll be able to live forever. You're not gonna die. You'll live forever. Huh. That's interesting. Secret knowledge that promises to make life everything you thought it would be and more. Right. And then now here you have his gang of two hundred that are loyal to him that are basically teaching mankind extensions of that. That's crazy. Right? Huh. And the fact that sexual union plays such an important role in this. That's very curious. It is. 
So you have later in the Enochian record, you have where uh, Gabriel is sent to tell the angels what God has pronounced against them. Okay. And it, basically God says, uh, look, against the bastards and the reprobate, against the children of fornication, destroy them. The children of the watchers, those who fornicated with, with the daughters of men, destroy the first generation of Nephilim. So in some of the other ancient texts, it's said that there was a civil war that was enacted amongst the giants, amongst right. the Nephilim clans. Okay. And that they had a 500-year civil war where they basically went to war with each other and tore each other apart until none existed. That's a long civil war. It is, but imagine if you are the parents having to watch this. That'd be rough. It would be. Literally watching a judgment where your children kill each other. For 500 years. As a judgment against you for having children that you were never sanctioned to have. Yeah, that's bad. I think this gives precedence and cause to why, as a outworking, you see in paganism and in poly, well, and, and pagan paganistic practices and rituals, child sacrifice. I think that it is the spiritual world trying to get back. That's fascinating. At God, since you made us watch our kids get killed, we'll in turn kill your children, the things you love. Wow. And we'll get them to sacrifice themselves, just like you got ours to kill themselves. That's eerie. That's my it's my theory. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's really scary though. Because if you if you look at it from that perspective and you look through the lens of human history, if you start back in ancient worlds, okay, you've got human sacrifice, right? Uh-huh. Okay, and that sounds bad, particularly when we're talking about children. Right. But if you roll that concept forward and you dress it in modern garb, it's no longer called human sacrifice. It's called abortion. Ouch. And there's a lot of that going on. There is. Again, willfully terminating the life of a child. Right. Even all, our culture celebrates it. And it's done for, for selfish reasons, just like before. Because you, you don't have... So the, the idea that you don't have money is really because you want your money for yourself. You want more wealth. You don't want to waste your money on your kid, on your child or whatever. You know, all of the reasons for not actually, I, I can't, I won't say all. Yeah. I, I mean, I was with you because I, I do understand, look, some people find themselves in some very unfortunate and scary situations. Right. I'm not suggesting that it justifies that action, but I do also understand how irrational fear can be. Right. Absolutely. What I find interesting is that the rationale that is politically given to justify this behavior is typically the result of activities that will be in line with this level of perversion coming from the Nephilim. Yeah. Well, rape and incest. I mean, if if the child if the child's the result of rape or incest, then we have to allow this concept of abortion to exist even though probably the vast majority of abortions that occur are not the result of rape or incest. Right. These, the fringe ideas that are used to defend it are a marginal fractional aspect of the actual abortions that take place. Right. <sighs> Heavy. It is. It's got a weight to it. So I'm hoping that this starts to answer the question of how things got so bad. Yeah. It, you're, 
painting a picture for sure. Well, this this is important because all right, we we got to the Nephilim and we dealt with the fact okay they came about, but what I, we just went over what the angels taught, all of that mixing, that's a very vital component of this whole idea of how things got so polluted. So Nephilim doesn't necessarily as a ge, as a genealogical idea. Yeah. Sure. We'll go with that. Let's roll with it. Sure. <laughs> or as a, or let me rephrase that as a genetic idea. Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean a specific race of beings. All right. Which I think is important to understand. So now we're just pointing like, okay, so those are Nephilim. And, and then what about, what about these other guys? It's a conceptual issue. So okay. you got these, the angels produce giants, right? And right. that came about through, the unification with human women through sex. Right. All right. But there were other forms of Nephilim beings that were also present. Those giants that came about by way of sexual activity, they were destroyed through uh, <clears throat> this first go round. The 500 years. The 500 war. year war. Okay. Uh, provided that's accurate. The other generations of Nephilim beings are still going around. They're still on the planet. And not only that, because remember, these giants can reproduce. They form clans. Right. They form these large family stru social structures. Because Goliath was one of, right. one of them, right? Yep, and Goliath is considered a post-flood Nephilim. Okay. But the Nephilim taught the mixing. You find this in like Jasher and uh, Jubilees. He t they taught the mixing of species. Not a good idea. No, the genetic mixing of species. Okay. So this is how the phrase show and in scripture shows up sinned against all flesh where I said we were going to get to. Uh -huh. This is the point. This is how you sin against all flesh. It's the mixing component. And again, for the modern mind, got to reiterate, we're not talking about mixing along this quasi idea of racial lines. Uh -huh. Not, not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about mixing across species lines. Okay. You know, mixing a human with a goat, producing a satyr. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's not something that God ever intended. And here's the problem when you do that, when you do this level of mixing, when you create a uh, a body that was not designed by God to house the the being that it, that it's supposed to house. I said that so <laughs> so horrible. Let me Welcome that. to my world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stay away from me. <laughs> when you're designing a body, here's like the laws of genetics. Genetics Genetics help to produce two, two things in a life form, the genotype and the phenotype. The genotype is responsible for producing the physiological structure of the, of the entity, like okay. the body, your physical traits, all of that stuff. Uh -huh. The phenotype is your expressive qualities of personality and all of that. Okay. Okay. The way God set this up, each kind after its own kind, this is why this phrasing is so important in scripture. Uh-huh is so that the appropriate phenotype enters the body of the appropriate genotype. Interesting. It is. In other words, let's make this practical. If you follow God's laws, two dogs get together, right? Right. They produce a dog. A, yeah. But they produce the body of a dog because this is legal. And the way God set this up, the soul of a dog is now allowed to enter into the body of a dog. Makes sense. Not the soul of a cat into the body of a dog. Right. That's a fox. 
<laughs> wow. I'm just going to scratch my head. No, it's just I, I saw this meme uh, on Facebook that said that a, a fox is dog hardware with cat software. And I was like, well, shoot, if that's not darn accurate. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay, but, so. <laughs> so here's why this is so crucial, though. This type of mixing that they were doing back in ancient times is what produced the extreme level of wickedness that we see, which led to God going, you got 120 years to get everything together, which led to him resetting the clock, which led to him producing the flood, which wiped everything that was on the surface of the planet out. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh Uh-huh. This is how it all goes together. This is how things got so bad. Okay. It wasn't just the moral depravity of Adam and Eve because of their rebellion or their disobedience in the garden. It more so was the divine counsel, the, the beings who, who uh, were part of the whole angelic order that rebelled against God. Okay. And the subset of that angelic order that decided to come down here, the 200 watcher angels, and defile themselves with mankind and produce the Nephilim, which taught the mixture of life forms and also taught pagan worship and the 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 proto-religion of paganism. That we see in the world today still. Well, we see variations of it, but this was one unified religion. Okay. I and this you. is where things are trying to get back to. You know, when you see those bumper stickers coexist? Uh-huh. All the different pagan religions of the world coming Smashes together as one. everything together. Interesting. Yeah. And that's what the Pope is working for even. Yeah. That's what he's trying to get to. They're trying. That's part of this whole new world order. Okay. The, this new world order idea is an old world order that's being revamped. Because everything got reset. It did. So right now what we've been talking about is new world order 1.0. What you and I are about to live through and our children will live through is New World Order 2.0. Interesting. So understanding 1.0 is critical so that so, we don't make the mistakes. Right. So when it says in, what is it, Second Timothy, that in the end times people will believe the doctrines of demons, mm-hmm. this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Absolutely, because all of this will lead up to the flood, and the flood's a big issue. Floods, a, I really want to take a few moments to talk about. Okay. Because first off, when you, when you ask somebody about the flood, it's really funny. You go up to a person, especially thinking believer, and you're like, you know, <laughs> what do you think about the flood? Most people revert back to Sunday school training, you know, 40 days, 40 nights. Right. And you ask them just a general question. I, lo- I love doing this. You run up to a person. And you're like, all right, scholar, biblical scholar, I got a quick question for you. You know, when it comes down to the animals that were supposed to be on the ark, how many of each type did God tell Moses to put on the ark? And your person will start thinking, and, you know, if they revert back to Sunday school, they're like, wasn't it one of each type? And you're like, ah, so close, sorry. And then you get a person that's a little more savvy, and they're like, no, no, it was uh, two, because he was bringing the pears. Uh-huh. And you're like, okay, good guess, but no bananas. <laughs> and you get your real person that's like, no, no, look, I looked at I looked at the text. So he's bringing two of the unclean and seven pairs of the clean. Right. My, my wife cannot stand. We, we, we bought this, like, my first Bible stories for mm-hmm. my son. And I'll read it, and I can't read it with the nonsense. Just the, 
it's not oversimplified. It's just wrong. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll read it. And and Noah put two of every kind and seven of the clean. And she's just sitting there rolling her eyes because every page I have to augment the stuff that's in this story. Right. So that they, they get the right thing. Right. Because it's it's really it wasn't just two of every kind. Right. But this is where this is where your person who's not savvy and not listening this is where they get mixed up when I ask this question. You know, how many time, how many of the pairs of uh, animals, how many of the animals God told told uh, Moses to bring on the ark? Noah. No, I said <laughs> what I said. OK, my bad. This is where they get mixed up because most people don't listen carefully. Right. And they don't catch that. What I said was Moses. My bad. I ruined. The you really thing. did <laughs> completely. <laughs> And so you, you'll find in people with their understanding, their handle on the flood, it's really, unfortunately, it's it's really loose. Yeah. You know, and, and it's important to correct that. I asked a person one time exactly how long was the flood? Typical answer, 40 days, 40 nights. Mm-hmm. That's not accurate that's at how, all. Right. That's how long it rained. Right. That's it. And the flood wasn't just about rain. Right. So I find this whole topic fascinating. I just wanted to take a... a an aside for a moment because you and I got caught up in a conversation with uh, a former coworker yeah, who was really trying to browbeat us into um, submission with the, of the idea that Christianity is not intellectually sound, particularly right. because we advocate for an idea of a global cata- cataclysmic flood. Yep. That was his first thing. Yeah. It's like, so you guys actually believe in a flood? And I'm like, wow, yeah. Welcome to the conversation. Right. We weren't even talking to you, but sure. Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, if you talk with most Christians and you ask them why, why did God send the flood? The typical answer would probably be because man was wicked. Yep. And or I'm to, like, well, or to deal with sin, though, even over yeah. to deal with sin, which which doesn't make biblical sense because of just being doused with a bunch of water could change the heart, which is where sin is. Yep. Then why did Jesus Christ have to come and be sacrificed? Right. And even because in Genesis three, there's a prophecy about Jesus. Right. Not so, about water. Right. So we know that this flood was not to fix the problem of sin. Now it might've dealt with some sinful beings and stuff of that nature right? and results of sin, but you also have to look if if God actually did this to deal with sin and there was sin right after the flood, then he screwed up. That's what you you'd have to come to terms with. You'd have to. So But it would appear that the reason that this actually happened was because of the fact that the Nephilim were exponentially increasing the amount of evil that was on the planet. This one this new world takeover campaign was right. underway and they were being incredibly successful. And so God, in my opinion, sends the flood to wipe out all of the corruption that the Nephilim were teaching mankind, all of the sin against all flesh, against reptiles, against birds, against beasts of the field, against domesticated animals, against man, everything that was corrupted, all of the genetic corrupt misinformation that was being done intentionally to destroy God's created order and to halt the birth of the Messiah that was prophesied, as you mentioned in Genesis three, all of this is being done in a military campaign to try to throw out the plan of God. And so God sends the flood as a result to reset the clock. Yep. That I think is absolutely fundamental to understand. Right. It's all of that. Right. This it's, is it's, all what's wrapped up. It's fantastic. But then if we zero in now, fine. Well, let's say we accept that. Okay. 
Then you've got the issue. You got eight people on a boat. How did Nephilim show up later? This is a good question. Yeah. That's the, that's the main issue. How do they show up later? Because we know they do. Right. They absolutely do. You can see it in, in the biblical record. You have it with Og of Bashan. You have it with Goliath. And Goliath had four, I believe it was four brothers, which is which makes a total of five. Right. Which explains why David picked up five stones. Yeah, he was ready for all of them. One shot wonder boy. <laughs> like, I would have had extra stones in case I missed. This boy wasn't missing. Nope. Yeah, that is crazy. He's like the Chris <laughs> Kyle of the ancient world. You know what I'm saying? Israeli sniper boy. Yep. <laughs> He's yep. taking them out. But you have these giant clans that actually existed. Um, we, we've got them up even through Europe and down through Spain. And, and uh, I forget that island. I think it's Malta. Okay. They they have remains from from giant beans, and you've got them over here. You've got them down in South America. You've got them in Peru. The question: How did they come back? Well, I said earlier, the first generation of Nephilim were brought about by sexual union between celestial and terrestrial. Okay. Right. Right. The second generation or subsequent is brought about by way of mixing. Okay. So changing of genetic information. Yeah, tends to this be is a touchy subject these days. It's about to be, isn't it? <laughs> so the idea is then that uh, following this this phrase in scripture, each after its own kind. Remember when God bought the the animals on the ark to Noah? It was each <laughs> after his own kind. You see that phrasing there, right? When when the story of Noah is first mentioned in scripture, there's this weird phrase that's in there that Noah was perfect in all of his generations. Yep. And you're just like, well, add a boy, Noah. I'm glad you didn't do any sin. Uh, screw the pooch for me. Right. I'm not perfect in all my generations. Good for your generations. Right. Like you can't even do anything about that. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> you're just good from the get go. No wonder you got a free pass on the love boat. Right. But that's not what it meant. It's lost uh, to modern, the modern mind. I like to say that uh, ancient truths are often lost to modern ears. Interesting. Because of the way that things sound to us we tend to interpret it not in the way that it was originally intended. And so we miss the value. Right. We force it into our cultural understanding. Right. Versus understanding exactly. the context. And we're so, we're, we're, we're so vain. We're thinking that, oh, this was a statement about his behavior <laughs> and, and maybe his racial purity, depending on how you, you want to extend it. Well, yep. That could be one. That's not what it meant. It's actually more fascinating than that. It's actually a genetic statement. Okay. When it says he was pure in all of his generations, what, are the, what is it essentially saying is that he was pure in his genetics. His genetics had not been corrupted with Nephilim genes. Okay. Because so, man, man was the one that sinned, and Jesus had to come as a man to pay the price. So there had to be a continual uncorrupted genetic line from Adam to Jesus. Right, and as we said earlier, that was the original intent and goal that Satan was trying to do from Genesis 3. Okay. He was trying to corrupt the bloodline so that it would prevent God inserting himself into the timeline and coming in human form, taking on human flesh, incarnating himself, doing what the angels did not have legal permission to do. Okay. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I love this stuff. This stuff, at least for me, it's so much more fascinating than just the dry Sunday school. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get you. This is stuff. I'm like, okay, I can listen to this. Keep, keep talking. Right. So, okay, fine. We'll talk just a little bit longer. <laughs> but, 
Noah being pure in his generations is so, so critical an idea because his wife apparently was also pure. Okay. I, I believe Jewish tradition holds that he got a wife from the daughter of Methuselah, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So Methuselah is in his genetic line, the line of Shem. Right. Not Shem. Nope. Seth. Yeah, Shem comes like, from wait, Noah. That was the, that's, yeah, I was going the wrong direction. It got messed up real quick. It did. <laughs> I, I went the wrong direction. Let me, let me, let me get it straight. Uh, but, but Noah's in the line of Seth. Okay. And so it, it is a, a, a pure line that, and pure not by a sense of moral depravity. They had sin because they were human beings. What they did not have was Nephilim DNA injected into their genetic, uh, their genetic lineage. Right. And so fine. Noah's clean. His wife is clean. By extension, their three sons are clean. But the question comes in, they had wives that were on the boat. And does, scripture does say that they chose their wives, right? Or something. I don't it, believe. No. At least, well, there's versions of scripture, so not the ones that I've read. Okay, my bad. You may have read a version <clears throat> that added that detail. But apparently, they what it does not say is that it was after their own kind. Okay. So it opens up this idea that perhaps they weren't Sethites. And as an extension, may have had Nephilim DNA in their genealogy. Interesting which would have allowed for some measure of this to continue on the flood. Right. Now, the judgment of the flood was to reset the clock, as I keep saying. Right. And to wipe out the Nephilim that that were the second generation Nephilim that were on, as well as all of the Chimera, all of the uh, hybridized human strand. I, I like that you keep saying reset the clock because... A lot of times when, when people talk about the flood, and I, we touched on this a little bit already, but they say that it, it fixed or it resolved or it, you know, it was kind of final, but it really wasn't. I think resetting the clock is such an excellent, um, accurate term because Jesus even says for his, you know, second coming, so it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the son of man. So it didn't fix anything. It just stopped it because we're growing into this same level of depravity, same level of genetic corruption, same level of um, doctrines of demons. It just started at zero at the flood. So yeah, I, I love that reset the clock terminology. No, I appreciate that. So then what you have right after the flood is you have Noah who apparently finds dry land and the flood recedes. Right. And then we have civilization starting over again. And it's got to be good. You would think, but you have this curious little story that shows up. And it's a story where I guess Noah became a, a farmer. Okay. Uh, had some grapes. These are amazing new grapes from the new world. Love them grapes. He got to and uh, got drunk. Okay. Apparently his third son, Ham, goes in and based on a cursory reading of scripture, sees his dad naked, makes fun of him or whatever, tells the brothers. Brothers come in with their backs to the dad, cover up the dad with the uh, with a blanket. Noah wakes up. He's he understands what happened to him. Whatever He's pissed that means. At ham, <laughs> and then apparently curses his grandson. Really and, weird turn of events. We all got our hands up. Like, what the hell's going on here, Noah? <laughs> right. This doesn't make any sense. No sense at all. Now, unfortunately, 
scripture's <laughs> scripture's silent to a fair degree on the the details of what happened. But there's a train of thought that I'm going to introduce. Not right. saying that this is 100% accurate. This is my idea. Hit me with it. Idea is is that first off, when you you use ancient language like covering up the nakedness of the father, mm-hmm. that could also mean that the mother, by extension, is exposed. Okay. Uh, if that's possible, it might mean that Ham had incestuous relations with his mother, producing Canaan. Uh, okay. That's why the curse would be on his offspring and not on him because it would have been conceived in corruption, which would be incest. Yeah. Which would be in line with Nephilim paganistic practices. Okay. That's was one possibility. All right. All right. Another possibility is that, uh, ham had sex with his wife who had corrupt Nephilim DNA and produced this six-fingered Nephilim uh, giant in Canaan. Okay. And that Noah waking up notices what's going on with this son, what's going on with, with Canaan, and curses him. Huh. Now, they're fascinating. I lean them a little bit more towards the first one. Right. But whatever it is, Canaan, well, Ham in general, his lineage produced... A lot of giant clans. Okay. You see that with his son with Cush. Uh, you see it with uh, who's the other the guy who I, I don't have the uh, I don't have the genealogy in front of me, but the one who sired uh, the the Philistines. I'm not I can't sure. remember his name, um, but he also had a lot of giants in his lineage. It's not the yeah. the, the sons of Anak. Is that that's not who it is? Is it? No, but they show up through that line, too. The Anakin. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that the, the Israelites, Anakim, mm-hmm. that's the ones that the Israelites ran into when trying to go back into the land of Canaan, right? Yep. They also ran to the Zoom Zooming and the Emim. These are all different uh, giant clay, clans, giant clans uh, or Nephilim clans. Because they even say that we're grasshoppers. You know, right. And they were site. huge. In yeah. fact, in Amos, it talks about how they were like the size of cedars. Yeah. Like those are like 38 foot tall trees. And they even corrupted, like you were saying. So we talked about the DNA of animals being corrupted. But it talks about in the canonized scripture that even a bunch of grapes was so big it took two people to carry it. Right. So they contaminated plants as well. Yeah, this was the idea that the 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 earth basically was eating itself. There's no way to possibly sustain, just from a caloric perspective, these type of, of life forms. Right. Even, real quick, I know we keep going on these little tangents and running out of time. But even a, a liger, if anyone's watched Napoleon Dynamite, I don't think it's actually bred for its skills and magic. But <laughs> if you cross a line in a tiger, because the um, the growth inhibitor is only found in one gender of each um, species. So if you take the genders that don't have the, um, the, the growth inhibitor and mate them, then you end up with a liger. And it's huge. Right. It's like two to three times bigger than a lion. However, one of the results of this this weird um, crossbreeding is it has to consume, even for its size, nine times more than it should, which is why you don't see ligers in the wild because they they starve to death. It's not 
possible for that to be sustained in an ecosystem. Which I think is an important point to point out. You know, I, I can't imagine a a 30-foot giant or, you know, as those cedars get up to like 120 feet in height. You can't imagine something that big. Right. That's crazy. But it would help to explain how you get some of the megalithic and monolithic structures of antiquity. Right. These things that happen to carry religious significance. Yep. Um, and I know I've moved ahead a bit, so I want to go backwards for a second um, just to deal with. We, we dealt with Noah. We dealt with Canaan. What shows up after that, again, is a reemergence of polytheism and paganism. Okay. And all of it culminates in this one person downwind from from Noah. And that's this guy named Nimrod. Nimrod. This is important, again, to understand how things got so bad. Because you get a reset of the clock, and then now here we go again just a few generations later. Right. So it was, it was Noah, Ham, Cush, Nimrod. Yeah. Right? That fast. Yeah. And, right. and here's what's, what's even crazier. Seth is still alive. Or not Seth, Shem. Shem. Shem is still alive. So Shem would have been Nimrod's uncle. Okay. He's still alive. That's crazy. You think that he would be dead, So, but to show how close the timeline is on this. Right. And you would think with that, that level of fear of the Lord so recent. The history shouldn't have been lost. You should have had the memory. Like everything's gone, covered with water for 371 days. The flood recedes. Now you're you're here. People start producing again. And you've got to still talk about the time of that which, you know, was before. Right. You've got to talk about what happened. You've got to create a, a cult, not a cultural, but a, a collective memory of the world before that was lost. Yeah. And you still choose to go your own way. That, now, Nimrod's a fascinating character because Nimrod shows how you can go from being a human being to transitioning to be something else. Okay. Yeah. I recently, I, I think you told me this years ago, but I recently came across this information. Okay. That he actually became a Nephilim, mm -hmm. right? That he wasn't born that way. He actually. Well, it says a Giberim. Okay. Uh, which happens to be like a mighty man. But well, the reason we attach those to the idea of Nephilim is because scripture says that those, the Giberim were the mighty men of old to translate that. Those are the demigods that we constantly talk about. Okay. Interesting. So but there's a connection between the two. Right. So Nimrod apparently sets up and he's successful in instituting the first post-flood new world order. Because he sets up, he's the first world ruler. Sounds like a good idea. I mean, just a couple generations ago, the entire world got judged. Let's yeah. try again. Yeah, well, they just didn't try hard enough. Yeah. That's all that was. It's like communism. Right. But Nimrod did something to himself where he started to become a Giberim. And scripture says he was a hunter. Doesn't sound bad again. Right, because the, the phrasing is hunter before God, right? Yeah. I was yeah. like, well, everything's before mm. God. I mean, if you're hunting for God, I don't see the problem. Yeah. Apparently what Nimrod was doing is he was hunting souls. Okay. Human souls. Hunting for sport, kind of like what you see created in, in the uh, the Pulp Fiction work of Predators. Okay. Hunting for sport, uh -huh. trophy hunting, 
Yeah, he's hunting down souls, but he's also using that in occult rituals. Okay, so like before the Lord is like... Um, in front of him. In, right, like yeah. blatantly doing it. Look, right. you hate that I'm doing this, but I'm doing it right in front of you. And flat out disregard. Right. And so this sets the stage for what we'll get into next week, but this sets the stage for the universal pagan religions that we see instituted across the globe now. And the political dynasties that have come about from it. They all have their uh, their roots in Babylon at Babel. Okay. All extending from Nimrod. And apparently what Nimrod was doing was possible because God shows up and he's like, mm, see what y'all doing here. <laughs> I think it was uh, one of the ancient books. I don't know if it's Jasher or Jubilees, but it basically records in greater detail what Nimrod's goal was, which was to take all humanity and split them up into three courses. And they had three specific objectives. One was to help open up the portal to get into heaven. Uh-huh. The other was to actually go and kill God. And the third one was to take the gods that they worship and establish them in heaven and God's throne. Wow. That's a lofty plan. That's more than that. <laughs> That's yeah. You talk about arrogant. Right. So when, when the Bible says that they built a tower to heaven, it wasn't classically like we think of a tower, right? No, it wasn't like they were building a skyscraper with the hopes that the, the spire at the top would scrape a cloud. Right. So you can get closer to God. Like that wasn't what they were trying to no, do. No, apparently it had two aspects to it. One was to make sure to future proof in case God decided to flood the world again, that we have a safe place to go and survive. Interesting. I and, never made that connection. That's crazy. And then secondly, it was oh, designed man. to produce a, uh, I want to be careful using this term, uh, but pr- basically to produce a stargate or a dimensional portal to which heaven and earth connect and there will be an access point. Uh, and apparently these are different places because angels seem to have the specific modality of perception that they know where there's a gateway. You see this like when uh, Jacob is laying down Jacob's ladder. Okay. And he sees the angels going up and down at that point. Uh-huh. You also see like Mount Hermon as a point. Right. There tends, there tends to be gateways that access and bridge our dimensional plane of existence with the adjacent dimensions. And there's an access point. Okay. But my understanding is that being uh, the celestial beings that are loyal to Yahweh uh-huh. only access those when they're given legal permission. Okay. That Whereas fallen angels access them illegally that where they're not regarding Yahweh, they're not asking permission, and they're normally using a legal loophole, which is that in Scripture says that, that the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth is given to men. So if men make a request that opens up a, an invitation, then mm-hmm. legally I can still go and do it, although I'm still not doing it with your quote-unquote direct permission. Huh. Which is why the the occult invocations that come about are so important. This is why those things that Aliester Crowley was doing when he decided to do the Babylon or uh, the Amalantra working, sorry. Uh-huh. And he decided to try to get past our dimensional barrier, the veil that God's put in place and get in contact with the entity on the other side. It's also what occultism promises. If, if you get in touch with these spirit beings, if you are doing uh, pagan worship, if you're doing... Uh, what do they call that? Like Ouija boards and other things that allow you contact with the spirit world. If you're practicing sorcery, we can get you in touch. 1-800-CALL-A-DEMON. <laughs> we'll get you the information you need, and you give us the access that we need. Hey, everybody's happy. That's crazy. 
So when God says don't do it, people look at him like he's being a tyrant. It's like, I'm trying to protect you. Right. You if, really don't uh, understand. If you love me, you'd let me live in freedom and do what I want. Wasn't that last week's? Yeah, or, we not, no, not last week, uh, but it's, it's one of those things you and I were talking the about. seven lies our children believe? Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Now, here's, here's what's crazy. Nephilim worship shows up today in modern culture right in our face in ways that we aren't sensitive to. All right. Like Say, what? Days of the week. Okay. We got seven days. The seven being, it, well, numerologically and uh, biblically speaking, anytime you have a group of seven, it's called a week. Okay. Just like anything that's 12 is a dozen. Uh-huh. Anything that's seven is a week. So you can have a week of days, a week of weeks, a week, week of, of months, months okay. a week of years. Week doesn't necessarily mean seven days. It just means seven. Okay. So God institutes, institutes the divine week based off of creation. Right. Six days plus a day of rest. Okay. Okay. You would think then that the days that are, re, that are associated with this whole creation period that Yahweh did would honor him. Yeah, you would think that. You would. So it's very curious to me that our days don't seem to have anything to do with biblical characters or anything that I read. They don't. So you start out with Sunday. That is a pagan worship of the sun god. Right. Then you start out with Monday. No, not start out. You can't start out with both of them. You start out <laughs> with Sunday, and then it's followed by Monday. Is that moon day? That's the moon day. Okay. So now you got the sun and the moon. These are two principal celestial beings. Um, celestial in the sense of in the sky. These are astronomical. Non-terrestrial. Right. And this is where scripture says, you know, you're not ever supposed to worship the sun or the moon. Right. Yeah, I wonder why. Huh. So after that, you have Tuesday. I don't know this one. What is Tuesday? I should not have jumped into this. <laughs> this quick. See, people, we don't know everything. We Tuesday? try hard. Oh, this makes me so mad. You hate it when you can't I hate it. <laughs> Oh, this makes me angry. What is Tuesday? Okay, so Tuesday, if I remember, is Twig's Day. Right. Uh, Twig's Day, which is, I think is a uh, a Norse god for sky god for war. Yeah, sky and war, something like sky that. Sky and war, okay. Then you have Wednesday, which is a wind's day, like W-I-N-D. Okay. And that's the Norse idea of Odin. So it's really Odin's day. All right. It became Wednesday. Then you have... Thursday, and that's probably the most apparent one, because Thursday is actually Thor's day. All right. Not Chris Hemsworth day, <laughs> uh, but the God Sorry, of Thunder. Ladies. Right. And then there is Friday, which is really Freak's day. Freak was the mother of Thor, right. the wife of Odin. And then you cap it, you end it with uh, Saturday, which is actually honoring Saturn, uh, which is actually the God of the want to say Roman? Yes. Roman God that would be equivalent to Lucifer. Okay. So all the days of the week actually point to, to occult meanings and significance. Right. Planetary names. Every one of our planets is named after a Roman or Greek, or a Greek God, which has its roots, again, in Nephilim uh, ideology and the occult practices embedded by the Nephilim. You know, in fact, when you're dealing with Greece and Rome, it's important to understand that they were actually worshiping these gods that were real beings and that they worship basically the same God with different names. Okay. And these were Nephilim gods. These were the gods of old. Interesting. It's crazy how all this stuff 
shows back up. Right. It all ties together. So like Mercury, Venus, these are these are Nephilim God names. Okay. Um Jupiter is like equivalent to Zeus. All right. Saturn's equivalent to, to Lucifer. Venus also is said to be the Luciferian star. Uh Neptune is another god, the god of the uh god of the sea. Sea, right? Because that's Roman. Like the equivalent of Poseidon. Yep. Okay. Uh Uranus is another god. Thought well, I was gonna say to some. Yeah. <laughs> some people love him. Pluto is the god of the underworld. Okay. Yeah. So it's interesting. We have a chance to name things. We name them after gods. Right. Not the the Christian God, not the most high, not Yahweh. We name them after Nephilim gods. These demigod practices. In fact, you've got like uh we got an ocean named after uh Atlantis, which is one of the gods of Poseidon. Oh, and anytime that you want to go around the world, you have to be looking at his son, Atlas. Interesting. Hence why you get Atlantic. Uh, okay. Also, Atlantis. These are all connected to Atlas, huh. which was uh, Poseidon, one of the one of Poseidon's um, twin sons. He had a couple sets of twins. Okay. But we see these things constantly showing up. Um, you see it a lot in military terms. Okay. Like on every, uh, I'm aviation enthusiast, military aviation in particular. One of the things you see in modern uh, military aviation is there's a cannon that each plane gets. It's a gun. Okay. And this gun <clears throat> is actually called a Vulcan cannon. The reason it's called a Vulcan cannon is it's named after the god of fire, Vulcan. Huh. Hence why we have volcanoes. All right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. You start seeing it over and over and over. And then you get this whole idea of the hero complex. Now, in today's day and age, when we hear the term hero, we think somebody who did something that was morally applaudable. Right. You, know, you did something amazing. What it originally meant was you did something that was supernatural in effort. Okay. Wasn't necessarily good. It's just something that normal human beings couldn't do. Because it's attributed to being supernatural, it was normally attributed to the demigods, the heroes of old. Okay. So you were doing something that was the result of supernatural empowerment that came from fallen angels by way of your Nephilim fathers. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Uh-huh, yeah. So even now, we applaud doing the Nephilim-like thing. Huh. That's not good. No, no, go out there, be a hero. I don't want to be a hero. <laughs> be like Christ. I don't want to be a hero. Yeah. He's a hero. You know that song, right? No. You don't know that song? Like that whole Be a Hero song? No. I went straight to Zero to Hero from the, the dumb Disney Hercules movie. Wow, but no, that's another point. <laughs> Notice, though, it's in Hercules. Hercules is a demigod. He's right. also will be considered a Nephilim. Yeah. So it's, it's not by coincidence that that shows up. Now, here's the craziest thing for me. I believe it was Gary Wayne who pointed this out. Um, another way that the Nephilim memory is re-communicated to mankind is through the idea, this royal concept. Okay. Now, to again, to the modern ear, royal is just one word. But if you practice that thing that we were teaching uh, a few episodes ago, the Mebian approach, uh -huh. you begin to look for the structure of the word. Right. Break it down and it's... Right, so parts. it's comprised of two words, Roy and Al. Now, Roy is the uh, the old word for king. Okay. 
Well, that makes sense that that would show up in the word royal, at least as we understand it. Right. Now, Al is different. If you go back in scripture and you look at uh, the names of beings that came from God, they all had L in their name. Like El Shaddai, Mike L, Gabriel. Right. Raphael. That L means God. Over time, L became all. All right. So you have Roy and Al put together to make royal. But by their their component parts, what you really have is God and king. Okay. Royal is the God-king concept. Interesting. Got to think like 300. You got to think that guy walking down the steps. Okay. The God King. Yeah. The guys who envision themselves I being. I a generous God. Right. That. But that's a Nephilim idea because they were, their fathers were considered gods and they were kings on earth. And there was that merging. Okay. And it's a corruption of the Jesus story. Right. Because he's our God and King. Right. Interesting. Huh. You start it's just to see everywhere. It, it's it, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's polluted. Now, Scripture says, you know, we're a royal priesthood. I'm not saying that that's Nephilim. Right. But the way the world uses it, like the, the royal house of Windsor, yeah, but they claim to have bloodlines that go back to the Nephilim. So I'm not surprised they consider themselves royalty. Right. Interesting. We have the right to rule. Well, what gave you the right to rule? Well, we have bloodlines that go back to the ancient gods, and so we have the divine right of rule, which we use to establish ourselves as kings. And you guys are, to quote Austin, peasants. <laughs> Eat the boot, peasant. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, this stuff gets so bad. I'm about to hurry up. This <laughs> stuff gets so bad from Babel uh-huh. that God comes and makes a judgment, changes the languages. Okay. You were telling me earlier you made a really good point about how when you there's scientific evidence to show that when you change a person's language, you also change their ability to uh, change their ability on how they perceive the world. Right. 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 So God changes the language, changes the perception of people on how they see the world. He again resets the clock again so that mankind now loses its brain trust and has to start from the dark ages, has to start from scratch. Everything is they knew you can't cross communicate. So people who were skilled in one thing can't communicate with others who were probably skilled in something else. And now structurally speaking, instead of being one unit, we now go back to being separated based on tongues, tribes or tongues, families, tribes, clans, and nations. Right. So the guy that makes the hardware can't talk to the guy that writes the software. Absolutely. So God breaks up humanity. And this is where you get this Deuteronomy 32 worldview. This okay. is another important and final stake to have in understanding how things got so bad. Okay. You got the divine council, which plays into this. You you first have Genesis six, and then you have the divine you have Babel, you have the divine council, and now we have Deuteronomy thirty two. Okay. What Deuteronomy thirty two basically does is it talks about what happened in Genesis ten. And that's where God broke up all of humanity into these course of nations and allotted himself one nation out of all of it, but he allowed the other nations to lesser gods to be ruled over them, given the fact that they didn't want to serve him. Right. So when, when God makes the statement, you know, you will be my people and I will be your God. It's a, it it doesn't make a lot of sense because to the Western ears, God is everybody's God all the time. Right. But at this point in time, because of this Deuteronomy 32 worldview that the nations were put under um, other gods, small G gods, that when God picked out Abraham 
and had his chosen people, that it was a huge statement that he said, I will be your God, because he didn't have that relationship with the rest of the nations. Right. In fact, you know, Jesus really, it's important to understand that Jesus came not to just save humanity, but to write the entire ship. Right. All, everything that we've been talking about tonight. Right. He, he, he came to undo the sin of the watchers and to establish his position on earth and to hold all of those accountable for the corruption of his creation. That's everybody. Anybody played a role in this, you getting called to order. Right. Court, court is in session and you about to get called to task. And he did all of that as a testament for his love for his creation, his wisdom, his power, and his justice. I think that is important to understand. Right. It's, it's vital to understand, which means that this coming new world order that we'll get into in the next episode is all specifically, intentionally, diametrically opposed to the will of God. Absolutely. Now, you know, we've covered a lot today. A lot. This is the point. It's probably happened before, like way <laughs> back. But this is the point where we realize uh, that we've covered a lot and that probably... You know, some of the people listening right now may be suffering from acute information overload, <laughs> you know, because we talked about a whole lot of stuff today. Right. And we get it. You might need some time to let it all calm down and digest before you take the next step. But, you know, Christopher, if anybody found this show interesting and they want to do a little bit of extra research, which I would suggest do that after a day or two. Right. <laughs> just give, letting, it, give it a minute. Right. Of letting this stuff marinate. But. They want to do that. They could just go to our website, truthfullyarmed.com, and on the main screen uh, or the main menu, sorry, select podcast and then select show notes from the drop down menu and just look for the broadcast date of this show. And they should be able to find linked resources uh, from this episode where we're going to talk about things like uh, uh, Mike Heiser's book, Reversing Herman, uh, or Babylon Rising by Rob Skiba or the Genesis flood by uh, Henry Morris. And we'll have some additional resources on there for people to, to look into, but highly recommend um, that you follow up on these to help fill in the gaps for things we talked about today. Cause this honestly, even though this went a bit longer than we anticipated, this is really just a cursory overview of the things that happened in the pre and post flood world that led to the level of corruption that we see today. Right this size, uh, we know that someone is always bound to ask that age-old question, why does any of this even matter? We call that the Ayala effect, the need to sift through information in order to find meaning. If you can't provide meaning for a person and all you give them is facts, or if you only give them problems without a solution, then all they really end up hearing is this. <laughs> So why is this information important? Because this fight for power and this direction of political events have been crafted by the hands opposing the living God of the Bible. And Jason, we can't hope to, to successfully play a game of chess if we're unaware of all the, the pieces. Right. It's not just that man is bad and Jesus is good and, and he did this little thing to help us get better. It's so much bigger than that. The game or the war is so vast. The Bible tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these celestial beings that we've been talking about in this episode. And it's vital to know that we have to repent and surrender ourselves to the only one who has the power to save us, which is Jesus Christ, our Yeshua HaMashiach. 
But once we're brought into the war, we become soldiers and we have to know the enemy that we're up against, not to fear them, not to cower, um, but really so we can properly defend against them and rescue those that might be in their crosshairs. And that is why this information, even though it's intense and it's heavy and it's uncomfortable and it takes some work, that's why it's essential. You know, that's well said, brother. Uh, and you're absolutely right. And here's the thing. If we're allies with God, then these powers that you were talking about are the mortal enemies of God. They represent the rogue agents that serve the interests of Lucifer. And they're doing that either knowingly or unknowingly. But they still remain our enemies nonetheless. Right. And the Bible's very clear. It tells us what, that, what we should do regarding our enemies. That, number one, we shouldn't be ignorant about their methods, about their tactics. And we're supposed to expose their works. Right. We're supposed to resist them. And then we're supposed to destroy, not destroy, but dispose of them, throw them down. So the first practicality in obedience to the Bible is educate yourself. Don't be ignorant. Right. And in fact, someone asking the question is likely to want to know what steps can I take to fight against this agenda? So just like Jason said, educate yourself with things like this podcast, which we think is pretty good. But, I agree. <laughs> but we might be a little biased. Slight. Uh, but you can check out other things like uh, truthonedited.com, uh, Stephen Darby Ministries, the Ted and Austin Brower Show at Health Masters, Scott Ritzema at Belt of Truth, or even Call for an Uprising on YouTube. And that's just a few. There's so many more. Right. And I'd like to emphasize, especially in this control sector, to familiarize yourself with scripture. It can be a daunting task trying to read these 66 books penned by 40 people over a time span of 2,000 years. And it's one thing that makes it difficult is it was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. That's a good point. So it, it, that's a little hurdle with, that we have to jump over. So don't be afraid to ask for help. We're communal beings and not just so we can gossip. <laughs> it's for other reasons. But in this uh, search for help, something that uh, Jason and I have found is, is really beneficial is Chuck Missler's Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. It's 24 one-hour segments that really give you a holistic view of the Bible um, and really open, at least helped open our eyes uh, to the bigger picture. It did. And, and gave us a different perspective. You know, we can't hope to win a battle if we're unaware of the rules of engagement. And those are found in our holy scriptures. But don't worry, we have a show coming up, uh, Why You Should Believe the Bible. We have sound intellectual reasons to do so. But if you can't wait for our show, uh, check out Vody Bakum. Uh, he's got a YouTube video, uh, Why We Can Believe the Bible. It, it's really worth checking out. No, that was good. Um, and... and I definitely second everything you, you just said. I think the one of the core practicum steps to do is to emotionally come to terms with the fact that what you have been taught is not the truth of what actually is. Right. That can be really unsettling for people. Or in other words, um, come to grips with the fact that you probably have been lied to. You yeah. probably have not been taught the full extent. And I mean, we don't, we don't have the full extent either. I'm not trying to sound like that. Um, but you probably haven't really been taught the actual real uh, truth as to what is going on behind the scenes and what things mean. And that can be disconcerting and uncomfortable for people. The next thing that I would say is really begin to educate yourself on these things. 
starting first, uh, like Christopher said, uh, check Munster's 20, uh, do the, learn the Bible in 24 hours is a great resource to start at. Another thing that I would start with is asking God specifically to show you areas in life that you may not be sensitive to Nephilim influence. That's good. Um, some people, have, uh, we, we all have, not some people, we all have varied histories and we have ancestral histories where people that we, we may not have known are involved in different actions. Those actions can ripple even into our own life. Sometimes that ripple effect can result in us not being sensitive to the spiritual world around us. Sometimes it results in us being too sensitive. Yeah. In the sense that we're, we're actually able to perceive a lot of what the world is around us, but not understand what we're actually perceiving, which can lead to crippling fear or, or other things. Right. I would say start that prayer time with God where you ask him to make your mind and your eyes more sensitive to Nephilim influence and then really begin to pay attention to that. You will probably start seeing it show up in ways you don't expect. And it will probably be very, they'll be a little unsettling, but they'll probably start becoming very exciting. Yeah. You'll start to see it in movies. You'll start to see it in shows. You'll start to hear it. You'll start to see in stuff you read. Oh, wow, they're really teaching the Nephilim ideologies all over again. Start picking up on that. The, the, the last thing I would say, as you become proficient in that, be willing to have uncomfortable conversations with folk around you. Yep. Because nine times out of ten, most people today are not responding to Jesus loves you. Right. Don't really care. Right. Especially in the Western yeah. culture. Don't care. But what will probably happen is at the time that's most inconvenient for you, <laughs> there will be an opportunity or somebody's going to ask you a question or they're going to bring up a topic. And if you've done your, your legwork at home, you've done your homework, you're going to know how this topic has little fingers and, and its toes and some of these things we talked about today. And you'll be the one that can actually introduce them to these concepts. Yeah. And people respond better to the person in front of them than they do to someone that's, that's uh, to a book referenced by someone. Right. No, that's a good point. Yeah. That's what I would recommend. Well said, bro. Thanks man. It, something else you can do uh, is share this show, share it with your family, your friends, yeah. your grandma, even. Yeah. You might have to show her how to listen to a podcast, but nope, don't show her. Just put the headphones on her ear, <laughs> but get the word out. Sign up on our website so we can notify you every week when we drop a new episode. Uh, and you can send those links out uh, to your group. Yeah. Getting the word out is one of the biggest things that you can do. We do a lot of the heavy lifting via research and putting these episodes together and getting them out. But we can't do what we can't do is reach out into your sphere of influence. And But you can. Right. We are never alone. We have that community of believers all over the country and all over the world, and a loving God who intervenes on our behalf. This allows us to stand in the gap and both assist those who are being damaged by this system and prevent others from falling into its trap. A trap that has been put in place eons ago by the enemy of humanity, the Satan, who used the beauty of women to lure and tempt his fellow celestial beings until the point that they were willing to violate their metacosmic restrictions and invade our dimensional plane of existence which gave way to a flood of chaos, violence, and sin to the point that is used in a cataclysm. It resulted in a cataclysmic flood in order to reset the clock. 
a clock the modern man is trying to move forward, knowingly or unknowingly, with the possibility of reproducing the same conditions that led to the destruction of the entire planet before. Here's the thing. Every day we are given another opportunity to reclaim our minds from the oppressive mind control matrix we are subjected to on a 24-hour basis. But how? Simple. By renewing our minds, literally rewiring our brains with scripture so that we think more like Christ and less like Satan. Which means we can't forget that we live in a complex matrix of deception. Literally, this is a web of satanically inspired, demonically engineered prison. Something is designed to completely arrest your mind. And we got to understand, people, that it's been designed with stealth technology so that it operates right in front of us with minimal detection. In fact, it's almost impossible to detect it using human technology, which is why you need spiritual technology. And that's exactly where scripture comes in. The reason this matrix wants to operate undetected is so it doesn't, so that we don't resist its influence on us and do its dirty work by contributing our life energies to help establish this new world order. This system, this new world order, is being erected by men and women that are committed to their cause, a cause that dates back to the ancient Luciferian snake-worshipping Canaanite order, an order that lusts for total world domination. And the walls of this matrix are the social control mechanisms used to guide humanity towards that aim. Now, between those walls, deep in the trenches of, of everyday pagan life, sits each and every one of us. Now, some of us are unaware of what's going on around us. And yet some of us are acutely aware of the onslaught and extreme measures being taken to usher in the new world order of the ancient gods. We have neither the time nor the inclination to be overly concerned anymore with the feelings of a world that rises and sleeps under the very blanket of free will that our God provides and then questions his goodness and wisdom in providing it. Which raises an important question. Who's going to challenge these gatekeepers? Is it going to be the Muslim? Nope. The Jew? Probably not. Uh, perhaps the Hindu. Uh, oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. Maybe it'll be the atheist or even the skeptic. Negative, Ghost Rider. <sighs> well, it won't be any of them. Then will it be the serious follower of Christ? You know, the one that's supposed to stand flat-footed and unwaveringly speak truth to power using the unadulterated, eternal, and unapologetic word of God Almighty? It daggone better be. Listen, we, and that's those of us who confess allegiance to Yahweh, those of us who recognize the eternally despondent position that our sin and guilt have put us in before a holy God, a God who cannot tolerate even a speck of sin. Those of us who in turn recognize our need and acceptance of an eternal Savior, not just any Savior, mind you, but Yahweh's Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, we are the bastion the last bastion of hope for this world. Why? Because we're the church, and consequently, we're the only institution that has both the biblical mandate and social responsibility to act. There is a reason why Scripture calls us salt and light. We are supposed to help stop the moral decay of society while simultaneously bringing in the intellectual and spiritual genius of Christ so that it replaces the false brilliance of Luciferian enlightenment. But make no mistake, light will dispel darkness. That's a fact written to the laws of physics. But it will also attract attention. And that's a fact woven into the experience of creation. We have to be okay with that. That's why 365 times scripture repeats the phrase, don't be afraid. Now guys, listen, we get it, all right? We're not sitting up here protected in, a, in, in our castle 
not having to deal with the same pressures and the same things that you deal with. We know that many of the things we talk about and many of the conclusions that we come to are just weird. You know, they're unnerving for some and, and for others are even taboo. We go to the fringe of Christianity. We deal with topics that most churches today just wouldn't touch with a six foot cross because those topics are just too controversial. They're politically incorrect and they're scary. You know what they should be? Because much of what we reveal on this show is about the hidden machinations of evil. Now, this evil is really crafty. It anticipates your apathy, your busyness, your tiredness, your fear of, oh, I don't want to confront other people, your tendency to want to avoid conflict. In fact, it manufactures feelings of inadequacy so that you'll avoid spending real quality time with our Heavenly Father. It helps that you'll not only shy away from, but completely avoid any situation, anyone that asks you just to do one thing, just to speak up. Why? So that it can remain hidden. Like we told you, this matrix functions under minimal detection. It wants to remain hidden and unchecked. But the fact remains, we must present the truth at all costs and at all times. See, guys, the reality is truth isn't just a collection of facts. It's not just an academic concept. It's a personal one, and it culminates in the personhood of Jesus Christ. He is the one on which all hope hangs, and there is no way you or I could defeat an archangel. And that's exactly why Jesus has promised to come back and deal with Satan in the most violent of ways. Jesus will fulfill his messianic mandate. He'll fulfill and restore creation back to its intended splendor. How? By reorienting everything again towards the Father. See, he'll bring the created order into proper relational harmony by bringing everything into complete alignment with the Father's will again. That, ladies and gentlemen, that's the true definition of utopia. Not this lie that's propagated by Nephilim ideology that if we worship and manipulate first our fellow man and worship fallen celestial beings, that we too could be like God. That's the lie. That's what you don't chase after. Now, here's the thing. We got to remember that until this point that Jesus comes back and fulfills his messianic mandate, we're still, unfortunately deployed to this dystopian rock by our savior in chief, the very one that's commissioned us on a CSAR. That's right. We are on a combat search and rescue mission, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us, but we still gotta go get them. Now our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. And make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment. But the rules of engagement are clear. Listen to me. You take fire, you get fire. Now I need you to do me a favor. Keep your head on a swivel out there. Stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, stay in the fight. That means do not give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you. And we'll see you out there again fighting on the front line. 10-4.